I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres such as Incubus, Earth Elementals, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the details we do without spoilers. So we're back again, this time not recording after work. Oh yeah, so maybe there's a little bit more energy, a little bit more gusto <laughs> in this one. Oh, uh, last episode was kind of really fun for the first half and then kind of rough for the second half just due to subject matter. Yeah, those movies are slightly more uncomfortable to cover and uh, that's why we had to add a disclaimer on that one. I felt like it was appropriate just because of the subject matter. Oh, yeah. And we had a little bit of help on that episode in, in post. We had Megan, my uh, old Twitch mod, helped us out with a little bit of extra proofing and Josh and I had our wives help us do that awesome throwback clip. But we're still on... The Master of Horror, Wes Craven. Yep. We're here for part two on it. We got four movies we want to cover. It was fun going back and watching some of these movies and seeing some of them for the first time. Yeah. And unfortunately, I haven't gotten to watch much of anything else recently. Just edit and watch shit for this podcast. <laughs> we, uh, we binged the boys. I really want to see it. Margie wants to watch it with me, so we're going to try to see it when uh, the kids are in bed, which is hard right now. I highly recommend that <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to watch it with the children present, but yeah, that's what's putting not. it on hold for so long. I was pleasantly surprised by it. Cause you know me, I'm not, I'm not into superheroes at all. It's just not my bag. And, uh, this even got me sucked in first episode. By the time it gets to the end of the season, I was, Oh my God, I was yelling at the TV because <laughs> I'm like, now I have to watch the second season too. Mother. <laughs> Speaking of superheroes, Brightburn's about to come out where I can actually fucking watch it since I had a baby when it was in theaters. Oh crap. I keep forgetting you haven't seen that. I still got to finish Swamp Thing, like the TV show. Okay, I was fixing to say, like, you didn't finish Swamp Thing? Like, dude, we're covering that this episode. <laughs> no, no, no. I watched Wes Craven's Swamp Thing okay. in its entirety, which I've seen before as a child. But uh, <laughs> no, I haven't finished the TV show, which I'm fucking thoroughly enjoying. You know, James Wan's actually attached to that. He's like producer for it. Yeah. So. Speaking of that, he's making a new horror movie that's supposed to be, well, you know, the rumors where it was the new, the reboot of Nightmare on Elm Street with James Wan doing it. Did we talk about that? We have not. Well, we off air talked about James Wan's new movie yeah. and how it's, he's directing it yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's using all practical effects and he's going back to his roots and it's going to be awesome. But he had to come out and, and I think it was either him or Blumhouse. Somebody came out and had to specifically say it's original work. Because the way it was worded when it first came out, there's also leaked information that Blumhouse is rebooting Nightmare on Elm Street themselves. Oh, okay. And then you hear they hire James Wan right after that, and everybody's like, oh, God, James Wan's doing Nightmare on Elm Street, which I'm sure you'd probably be happy with. Yeah, I'd get behind that. But apparently it's original work. Okay. Well, speaking of Blumhouse, don't know how it is now that this is airing, but as of the news yesterday, The Hunt has been pulled from release. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that means it's never going to come out. They just took it off the current schedule and they're not marketing it, but they were marketing it so hard Yeah, before all the unfortunate shootings that are completely fucking unrelated to the movie happened. Yeah. You know, our country, we have knee jerk reactions to fucking everything. Exactly. But yeah, like you said, knee jerk reaction, but hopefully it'll still come out. I don't know. You know, the shit happened that was bad. You know, there's crazy people. Let's blame the crazy people and not other things. But at any rate, I did do a little bit more digging on a couple of things that we had discussed in the last episode, just to clarify a couple of things. One, 
I'm an asshole. Okay. Um, I mentioned the book, Wes Craven, The Man and His Nightmares, that was where I did, got a lot of my research from and cited a whole bunch in the last episode. And did not say the author's name. That is exactly right. It was John Woolley. So my bad, everybody. I caught that when I was editing the episode because you're like, you said the book and you're like, and I don't have the author's name in front of me, but it'll make it, it it'll come <laughs> up in my notes at some point and I'll say it at the end. Never happened. Yeah, that made me the asshole. But uh, I did go back and I, I, I researched some more on Nightmare Cafe we had brought up and we talked about. And it did air. It only made it six episodes before it got shit canned. And it's this cafe where Robert England's character is the owner. And this man and this woman die at the same night, different ways, but end up in the same lake or ocean or whatever. And they come into this new dreamscape type thing, which is where the cafe is. And they go in and they get hired as like the waitress and the cook or something like that. And then the story follows different people that come in with these problems in their lives that they have to do something dramatic to change their ways, so to speak. But it goes into crazy ass, like outer limits, twilight zone type shit. But that's what that show was. I am almost 100% positive. I saw that as a teenager on TV and I always okay. mix it up with the other one we were talking about. Yeah. And I went back and watched the other show that I can't think of his name right now. Freddy's nightmares. Freddy's nightmares. Oh, so bad. And I was like, where's the diner? Where's the people? <laughs> and it was, I had to have seen this on whatever fucking channel it aired on in the eighties or nineties. I too am an asshole because remember I was talking about like Sharon stone getting interviewed and she was like, Oh, when I'm fucking made the head explode and that was the most fun thing ever. And you're like, no, that wasn't, her movie Deadly Blessing, that was the Deadly Friend movie or whatever, right? Yeah. I saw that interview again after the episode. It's Christy Swanson is in the other movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's her talking about the head exploding that you were talking about. So I was talking about the same movie as you and for some reason mixed up Sharon Stone and Christy Swanson. I don't know why. Oh, dude, I didn't even catch that because when you said, oh, yeah, that was her first movie. I thought you were hearkening back to Deadly Blessing while we were talking about Deadly Friend. I didn't. Okay. But I guess if I don't want to have to edit another four and a half hour mess down to just under three hours, we should probably get going with the movies and start with Wes Craven's 1981 film, Deadly Blessing. Now, uh, this one was written by Glenn Benest, and he actually did Summer of Fear, which is a stranger in our house, <laughs> and uh, Matthew Barr. But when Craven was brought in, he basically rewrote it. Um, we've got Marin Jensen as Martha who was on Love Boat and the OG Battlestar Galactica. Right. Um, Sharon Stone, which hasn't she been in a couple of movies since then? She's like some kind of actress, right? I think I've seen her in a couple of things. Okay. As Lana, we've got Ernest fucking Borgnine <laughs> as Isaiah, who saves this movie. This movie, without him, the it wouldn't be the same movie. I just have to say that. It's, uh, I mean, to me, this really wasn't that great of a movie. And it's another one of those, oh, what did Wes Craven say about... Serpent and the Rainbow. Uh, diffusion of Purpose. Yes, I very much feel that in this movie. <laughs> Definitely towards the end. We've also got uh, Susan Buckner as Vicky, who was also on Love Boat, and she was in Greece. And we've got Michael fucking Berryman again yep. as William. So we open with this fucking little house on the prairie meets Tales from the Fucking Dark Side <laughs> opening credits. That is such a perfect description of this opening scene. <laughs> it is, man, because it's these weird still images of the Hittites out there working their asses off and fucking little house on the prairie sound and music. And um, the narrator kind of sets things up for us and ends up saying a gruesome secret has been protected for generations. And we see the Hittites out there busting ass in the fields the hard way while Jim comes putting out on his tractor. We cut to Faith sitting in a field painting. And William comes up, starts yelling at her, 
yanks her painting away, breaks it over his knee, and tells her to get off the farm. She ends up calling him a pig and a retard. He chases her off, calling her a servant of the incubus. Incubus! Incubus! So as they're taken off across the field, they run into Jim. And he tells William to go, and William spits on his tractor, calls him an infidel, goes walking off. Faith's mom comes up, Louisa, and she sends Faith home. And as she's walking away, Jim says that he'll be calling on her soon. And she's like, well, why would you do that? And he's like, well, don't you do midwifing? And she's like, oh, I hope it's a girl. Boys are nothing but trouble. <laughs> so we cut to uh, John getting scolded by Isaiah for coveting Jim's tractor. That's right. what he says. He's like yanking on his ear and he's like, you shouldn't covet what they have. But Jim gets back to his barn and he sees that somebody's painted Incubus inside the barn. So we cut back to Faith redoing her painting. And it's like this Salvador Dali meets Tim Burton thing. <laughs> and Lisa comes in and tells her that I think girls should paint their nails and not this. We go back to an exchange between uh, Jim and his wife, Martha. And I think she's given him a present. And as they're talking, we find out that Jim's actually an ex-Hittite. While this is going on, we get a POV shot of somebody sneaking up on the house. Couple goes to bone down. So the POV shot ends up coming inside the house and comes in and kind of looks through, watching them do their thing, and then goes walking off. Afterwards, Jim gets woke up by this dog barking. He goes downstairs to investigate and finds the front door open. So he goes outside, goes over into his barn because he hears the tractor running. <laughs> Turns the tractor off and then does the dumbest thing he could do. Walks right in front of it between it and the wall. Fucking maximum overdrive kicks in. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking thing runs right into him and crushes him to death up against the wall. And there's a cool thing where, like, it's not graphic. Like, you see him kind of get crushed and, like, blood running down his face. But blood flies on the, the headlights of the trailer and, like, washes the whole barn in red. Yeah, I thought that was really neat. So that was neat. But it was safe. This was the first point in the movie, because I, I knew nothing about this movie going in. And I was like, oh, it's a slasher movie. And I was so excited. <laughs> to that point, I think we may even see... We may see a shot of someone sneaking up on the house before the POV shot. I know that happens later. It may even happen that early. It is very much a slasher movie all the way up to the last like 48 seconds of the film. Yeah. So Martha wakes up the next morning and goes outside and finds her dead hubby. And we cut to her burying him. And the Hittites are watching from up on the hill and like doing the little incense thing, swinging it and stuff. And uh, the undertaker, because there's not a priest there, I think it... It's just the undertaker that's there with her. Um, I was like, I usually see them do that for their own, which, you know, we've already said he's an ex-Hittite, but okay, he's definitely one of them. This is when we get introduced to Lena and Vicky in their Mustang. Well, I guess it's Vicky's Mustang on their drive to see Martha. And that's where we get the line where uh, Sharon Stone says that the, the Hittites make the Amish look like us swingers. So meanwhile, we've got William and the boys go breaking into the barn. One of the boys actually dares William to go in. Does he even dog dare him or double dog dare him? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. So they break into the barn. Uh, we see Louisa dropping off Martha um, from the funeral. But as she's getting out, she sees the shutter for the barn windows open. So she's like, oh shit, I need to go investigate. She goes out there. The boys take off. But they split up from William. And William ends up going into the chicken coop. And there's like a trap door thing that he goes climbing through, which I thought this was really neat because like it, I totally buy how the door comes down, getting stuck on his heel and ripping his shoe off as he goes to get out. So his shoes left behind. That's important. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the girls arrive and then through conversation, we discover that Jim was actually Isaiah's son and he had left the group to go to school and he was the first one to ever do that. And when he came back with Martha, he was banished. 
but Isaiah let them keep the farm because that's what they're talking about. They're like, do you own this land? Like they're, they're from LA and they're like, do you have any money now that your husband's dead? Um, they don't say it like that, but they're like, do you own this free and clear now? Blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And she starts telling them the story. So I thought that's really weird that it was Hittite. It was a Hittite farm. And then when they banished him, they still let him keep the farm. What if like his grandfather left him specifically that land or something? Maybe. So like he owned, like the land is in his name and it's, they would like it for the hit. Hittite fucking commune or whatever the fuck you call it. Uh, but another thing that happens through a conversation is they talk about, I think what gets said is they talk about how she was with Incubus and that, that he was gone now. And they're like, well, what's Incubus? And she explains that it's a devil that seduces you in your sleep or just comes after you and takes you like a beast. So we see William getting scolded for losing his fucking shoe. He's telling a story about how he was trying to save a cat out of some mud and it got stuck in it. <laughs> and uh, it's like the... The lie is a greater sin than the sin or something like that and gets told to go back and find a shoe. Michael Berryman was very underutilized for this film, I feel like. He was. And later on in the movie, they refer to him as a man child. And that really sucks that he was kind of typecast into that role because he could have just been one of the Hittites. I don't. It makes the punishment that Leopold ends up with later make more sense. But still, I think it was a missed opportunity. Yeah. I mean. The way he was used in Hills Have Eyes in this film. Is part of what made it so shocking when you see him in weird science. I know, <laughs> you right? have a lovely home and like all that. And it was just, it's just the fucking way they did it. It was terrible back in the day. Man. Yeah. We see, is it Lana or Lena? I swear it's Lana. Anyways. So we see Lana going to bed and she's doing the take lots with alcohol thing. I mean, I think it's Lana as well, but I'm the guy that purposely said fucking even for an entire 30 days a night <laughs> after specifically knowing that it was Evan. And I just did it the whole time and even made a joke at the end about how it irritates me when people say his name wrong. And I didn't realize I had said his name wrong for 40 minutes. Well, later on in this episode, there's like five names that I'm probably going to say wrong and probably spelt wrong when typing. So we'll be in for a ride when we get to that. <laughs> but she lays down in bed and she sees a spider crawling across the ceiling. This is going to be a reoccurring theme. Because Craven likes reoccurring themes. It's a harbinger. I don't like spiders, especially tarantulas. <laughs> so you really like it when she goes upstairs in the barn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so William uh, goes out to the barn and gets his shoe. But he also gets his peep on watching Martha change. Because for some reason we needed her nude a couple of times in this movie. So as he's standing there at the window, he notices the sheath from a knife sitting on the windowsill. And he goes to pick it up. And just as he picks it up, bam, gets knifed in the fucking back. Slasher movie. Yeah. So it was far. actually, I think you see the gloves, don't you? Was there like the Jallo style gloves I, or did I build that in my head? No, because I know there's later parts in the movie where the gloves are always there. And I know you see the knife go in and out of his back and it's probably the same gloved hands. Because honestly, it really feels like a Jallo style fucking slasher type flick at this point in the movie. And it continued to stay that way for me. <laughs> it should have stayed that way. So the next morning, Isaiah and Matthew go to question Martha about William because all they know is that he's missing. He never came home last night. And Isaiah's talking and Matthew gets frustrated because it's his son. And he starts talking over Isaiah. And Martha said, you know, she's being real apologetic and sincere. And she's like, you know, if I see him, I'll drive him by. And Isaiah fucking yanks Matthew back. You see how the glib serpent's tongue deceives you? You put your son in her ungodly machine. She is with Incubus. She could not speak the truth if she knew it. So Isaiah tells Martha the land belongs with his people and he wants to buy it because I think he even says we'll give you a fair price for it. 
which that's why I went on and on about it earlier. Like, and now he wants to buy it. Why didn't he just say you're fucking banished? This is mine now, but you're right. It could have been other family involvement. They're not, the Hittites are like their own fucking sect. They're not in with the times. So I'm sure they pay taxes or whatnot because they could be run off, but like they don't deal with law. They don't deal with this. They don't, don't do this, that, and the other. So I didn't know how much that tied into it, but I'm overcomplicating a simple movie. So over breakfast, Lana tells Martha about the dream she had, about a ashy man calling her name. And she ends up shooting him with a cannon through the door, but then he's still there, but had turned into a spider. And while she's telling her about this dream, this look on Martha's face is like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. It's like Nightmare on Elm Street when somebody's telling somebody about Freddy Krueger and they got that look on their face like, oh, shit. You, you, I see, I'm not telling you I saw the same shit. I don't want to pretend it's real. So that's just another one of those things like you can see such a sprinkling for other, other ideas later. And then shit later on in his career that you can see harkens back. Missed all of that when I watched the film. Don't remember any goddamn cannon or spider. Oh, no, it doesn't happen. She's saying that's what happened in the dream. Oh, yeah. I was like, I remember they're shooting a cannon at a nasty man through a tour. So Faith shows up at the window very creepily. She's got this basket of eggs. And she comes inside and they're talking and she's like way too into Martha. And like goes wandering off into her fucking bedroom. And she's looking around. She's fucking sitting there bouncing up and down on her bed asking her if she misses her dead husband and shit. And it's very creepy. <laughs> And she gets run off. So after breakfast, uh, <laughs> the Jezebel goes out for a run. And by Jezebel, I mean Vicky, because this is dangerous because she's in not even shorty shorts, but shorts and a tank top. We're still coming out of the 70s, no bra. And she goes running around Hittites where they're like out trying to work and shit. And she comes upon John and I did some Googling on this to try to figure this out. He's got a fucking armband and... At first, I thought it was red and was going to make a friggin' Nazi joke. But I, later on, I think it's pink. And I don't know if that's to symbolize that over uh, Jim dying, or I never noticed anywhere else in the movie. Did you notice that? that no, when she's I didn't. jogging? It's this scene and a scene after it where he's got a band on his right arm. I don't, I'm making a big deal of it, but I don't know what it was. And he asks about her car. And uh, she's like, oh, you saw my car? And like, yeah, it's like they're setting it up real fast that he's already way interested in her. So she goes to leave and he decides he wants to talk to her and they go sit down and talk for a while until Isaiah and Melissa arrive. And Isaiah tells John that you'll be working now. Yeah. And so I guess they're up north. Um, <laughs> and Vicky tries to introduce herself. And uh, Isaiah very angrily turns around and screams at her. We are the kindred of God. We have no business with the serpents. Now, he also tells John, your cousin is a sound woman. You are to shun the rest. I didn't catch that on first watch. I just thought that, like, within the family, you two have already been chosen to be wed. I didn't catch that it was his fucking cousin that he was supposed to be hooking up with. What the fuck, Wes? Well, the other guys could have wrote that, but I don't know. What the fuck anyways? <laughs> <laughs> like, you can be religious and weird. That's your own fucking rights. But come on. You... Anyways. I mean, we're in the South, so I can ask this question, but how <laughs> South is this I don't think, supposed to be? I don't think it is. I didn't even catch if they said where it was, where it is. I know if we're going the route of the Amish, I know you'll, you got a pretty good stretch from Missouri all the way up into Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, it's pretty much Tornado Alley is <laughs> Amish country. I mean, to my knowledge, I could be completely wrong. Citation needed. Um, at any rate. So back at the farm, uh, Lana goes to the barn to fetch a bolt for Martha because she's out mowing the grass in the drive for the mower bricks. And this is where it goes all slashery, like big time, you know, like you said. Where it goes? 
to me, this is the most, the POV shots and everything, absolutely. But this whole thing feels slashery. And when I say slasher, I do not mean Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Jason Voorhees era Friday the 13th movies. I mean that older, like, happy birthday to me. Yeah. Original Friday the 13th. Like, where you just don't know what the fuck's going on and you just see it from the POV. It is that early style slasher movie. Like shit we launched this podcast with. Literally. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, Wes made one of the fucking greatest slashers of all time, but he was like a slasher that was very much not in that vein. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting to see him have that style movie. I didn't even know it was a thing, you know, but it's because this movie's just not... Not just while I'm on, on the subject of this movie, <laughs> or while I'm on the subject of talking about this, does it feel made for TV to you? I, that's what I almost said earlier and said I was going to wait till the end. It absolutely feels like it came on like the Hallmark Channel or something, but just happened to be a slasher movie. <laughs> like the cinematography, the lighting, just the way it's like filmed, yep. the dialogue, the fact that you have like high tier famous actors like Ernest Borgnine in the movie in a shitty, shitty role and just stuff like that. I don't know. It just feels like uh, it came on CBS after the news in the eighties or something. Yeah. I did not dig into the actual production crew and whatnot, but it wouldn't surprise me if like the whole get up just came off of, or was pulled from a TV production. Cause you're right. It definitely feels like it. Well, I knew he had made some made for TV films in the early days of his career. So I was actually shocked. This wasn't one of them when I looked it up. Well, and then one of the writers was one of the writers of the TV film, uh, a stranger in our house, which got turned into a summer of fear. And so maybe there was actually people, there may have been more people from that production. Actually, I may have even said something about the last episode and I don't fucking remember. Was this one of those movies (laughs) he made like where he just needed a paycheck maybe? Um, no, this was when he was actually had uh, projects back to back. Okay. So back at the farm, Lana goes to the barn to fetch a bolt for Martha because she needs it for the tractor. She goes in the door and window. Well, the door slams shut behind her. And then I think she opens it and it shuts again. But eventually all the doors shut, all the shutters shut. It's dark as fuck in there. She's walking into cobwebs. She's seeing shadows and shit. It's very fucking creepy. And she hears something upstairs and she goes up the ladder to go upstairs. And the upstairs is like she just went into the set of fucking arachnophobia. (laughs) There's so much cobwebs. And in the big picture of the film... On second watch, I'm okay with it. On first watch, I'm like, dude, set dressers, too much, too much. (laughs) But at any rate. You don't know how spiders operate in whatever part of the country that we can't determine. (laughs) That's the weird thing. Okay, if you want to go down that road, what's weird about it is in some shots, we get tarantulas, which don't even fucking spin webs. And in some shots, we get like actual spiders that I don't know what they are, but they're on webs and look like they would spin webs. Of course, they did the same thing in arachnophobia, didn't they? Didn't the movie fucking so. terrifies me. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I don't. You want to know what scares Jesse? <laughs> Arachnophobia scares Jesse. I, I did get angry because I'm pretty sure I saw tarantulas with webs in this movie, and I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't think they ever show them on there, but they keep showing like, ah, the spider's a spider, like type shit. Even a defanged spider. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna get to that. So down the stairs, she can see the light cut through in the shadow of the door opening downstairs. But she can't go down there because there's this big-ass cobweb with a big-ass spider right in her face. So she turns around and kind of collapses and cries in the hay, and she finds William's shoe. This dark figure jumps up from behind the hay, scares the shit out of her, and she runs face-first into that cobweb, face-first into that spider, and tumbles down the fucking stairs. As she wakes up, she realizes that she now has another huge spider on her. I say it's another one because the one in the web's a spider. The one on her chest is a tarantula. Right. (laughs) She gets up and stomps the shit out of it. She goes running towards the door as you can hear Martha calling her. Because I don't think Vicky's back yet. 
Someone's calling her. Female voice is calling her. Um, but just as she gets to the door, the fucking corpse of William falls from the rafters hanging by a rope. So we cut to the family coming to get the body. Of course, they blame Martha and they tell the sheriff that they'll deal with this. This is the work of the incubus. <laughs> Sirius is a fucking heart attack. And he says it every That's time. That's why I'm saying, man, he's the only one that could pull that shit off in it. And like, you tell him Isaiah. <laughs> but Martha asks Lana about the person she saw in the barn. And she replies, oh, no, it was just me in there. Because the sheriff told Martha, it's like, she's rambling on about some woman in a black dress, blah, 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 or something like that. It's like, oh, no, it was just me. So that night we get another POV shot. Sneaking again. <laughs> so this time we're seeing Martha getting into the tub. And we get the fucking knees out of the water shot, the playing with the washcloth, everything that we see revisited shot for shot in fucking Night Run Elm Street later with Nancy when she's in the tub. I meant to pull up the two scenes side by side and watch them, and I didn't get a chance, but I am 95% certain it is shot for fucking shot. The only thing I couldn't remember is in this, she eventually takes the washcloth and puts it over her face. I couldn't remember if Nancy does that or not. I think so. I think that's why she doesn't see the hand. Okay. But even the hand popping up I know. and the snake head I popping know. up. I, I got a head. I'm so sorry. But it's just like, <laughs> it was like he really liked the scene. And he's like, you know what? I bet nobody's fucking going to watch that movie. I'm just going to reuse it in this one. <laughs> yep. But uh, we get a real big buildup with the POV shot turn into somebody with a bag putting the fucking snake in the tub. And it's some kind of viper, right? It looks like it. And it looks like when they do the overhead shot, when she's freaking out and the snake's going along beside her, that shit's legit. There it is like a, a real, real snake. snake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, so the snake gets in the tub and she doesn't notice it. And she goes feeling around and it's like, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. She pulls out a bar of soap. I know. <laughs> it fucking got me. It works. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to bring it up. There's actually real good tension building right there. And she's like, uh, do that again and I'll kill you or something. And she sets it back down. And then Freddy's glove pops up out of the water. No, it's just the snake, <laughs> which that's more terrifying. That's actually, it'll scare you in the fucking, the fucking glove. Cause uh, I could see that happening in real life. If you like live on a farm in the country and a yes. snake gets in the house, like, Oh God, it's a water moccasin. <laughs> so she freaks out a little bit, but she runs off, grabs a fire poker, goes running back in there, kills the shit out of it. Honestly, I like how that scene was shot. I like how you don't see her in there doing it. Like the girls yeah. are just hanging out and she just fucking walks in. Grabs fire poker, goes in the bathroom and handles business. And the girl's like, what's happening in there? Yeah. We basically see it from their point of view and it's, yeah, it's good. Cause and then, and then it goes back to a shot of where you, j there's a few drops of blood on the inside of the tub and you see the, the end of the snake's tail kind of slowly go down into the water. It's done really good. That whole scene, probably my favorite scene in the movie, not because of the nudity, but, and not because of the Nightmare on Elm Street thing. Just there's good tension there. I like how it plays out. I like how she runs out and we see it from the girl's point of view. Best scene in the movie to me. It was the most professionally made scene in the movie. It was like the best way I could describe it. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. <laughs> so meanwhile, at William's service, Isaiah blames the messenger of the incubus for what happened to William. Again, that's when he calls him a man child, blah, 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 yada, yada. And he calls for whoever took William to that forbidden place to come forward. Poor Leopold Butterscotch. Um, poor Leopold Smith. <laughs> Got to get myself parked in there, man. Um, he's told to step forward. And he confesses for what he did. And Isaiah beats the living shit out of this kid's hands with a switch. And when it cuts to the shots of him, like, rearing up before he goes down on him, like, the look on fucking Ernest Borgnine's face is like, be gone, you demon. Like, he's so good in the movie. Beats he was so good in the movie, but it looked like he was actually beating somebody's fucking hands with a switch. Different time, man. <laughs> 
What about the actors union? You know what's weird? I thought the kid looked familiar and I went and looked him up and I'm like, oh, he didn't do much anything else. Oh, crap. He died five years after shooting this. Oh, really? 27 Club. The kid, I say that because he died at 27. Um, he was 22 when they were filming that. The, the Leopold kid. He looked a lot younger in the movie. I know. Maybe he was a man child, but I'm, I'm not trying to speak ill of the dead here or anything. But like, I, I was like, oh, I know I've seen this motherfucker or something. And I hate that man. Or, or like you see somebody in a movie you haven't seen before. And it's like, oh my God, what are they doing now? And you look them up and they're like, oh fuck, they're dead. I hate that shit. Anyways, sorry there, for getting dark there. There's a couple of <laughs> movies on this list that I was like looking people up because I thought I knew them from somewhere. And I'd only, and this movie was one of them. Like some of the actresses in this movie, I think like there, there's only one movie in their credit. Yeah. And their credits or, or like they did one movie after this and it just stopped. I'm like, are they fucking dead? And I couldn't find anything where they died. (laughs) A lot of people did Wes Craven movies and quit apparently. I know. Right. So the next day we've got Martha and Vicky heading to town and in the store, John spots Vicky while he's looking at wedding dresses in a magazine with his fucking cousin. (laughs) She is wearing like the pokey peak shirt again. (laughs) She is. She brought her seventies clothes with her. So, uh, he goes over and talks to Vicky. Vicky asks John out on a date. But then Melissa, she's the cousin, she sees him talking. She fucking starts crying and runs off. John's like, oh, shit. He doesn't say that, though, because he's a Hittite. <laughs> <laughs> he goes chasing her out. <laughs> and he's all horned up from the Jezebel, and he forces himself on her. And she cries and runs off again. Now, I say the Jezebel in there, and I think I said it earlier, because when he's talking to her in the store, she says something about her outfits. And like, I don't see how short uh, jogging shorts and a tank top makes me a Jezebel. And he's like, you know of the Jezebel? <laughs> yeah, I fucking love that part. And uh, what's up with Wes Craven making dudes force themselves on women in any way possible? I don't know, but at least this is where we see a turning point to where it's not so bad. <laughs> And it happens again in, in the next movie we're going to talk about. But it, once again, it's not so bad. But it's like, why? Yeah. Um, I do like the scene when they park and they're trying to get gas and she decides to walk to the store. And like, are you sure you're okay going over there? She's like, I'm not afraid of Hittites. And she yeah. says it like loud as shit. And they're all out. <laughs> and it's actually, it was really fucking funny. Yeah, that's a good line. So back at the farm, we see that Martha is now armed. And uh, she's going to do some target shooting. Vicky comes over to do some shooting with her. And meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, Isaiah sees uh, Melissa's torn dress and calls John into the barn for a beating. Well, he's beating him on the back with the switch this time. And after like three hits, John grows a pair and tells Isaiah no and stands up, grabs his arm, fucking disarms him and pins him up against the wall. You're not my dad. <laughs> Wait, it is. Well, uh, Isaiah tells him to go. You are a stench in the nostrils of God. The devil has you now. And I mean, he even keeps going after that. And he's like, your brother won't look at you again. Your mother will never feed you. And like, oh man, he's like really fucking banished. And uh, I think he even says, uh, go to your whore and join your brother in hell or something like that. So uh, that night, Louisa brings Martha's hat back and she asks if Faith had been bothering them. She's like, oh, well, she did bring a bunch of eggs. And she's like, oh, so that's where all the eggs have gone. And Martha's like, oh, well, I'll go get them for you. But uh, she ends up, because I think Martha walks off and she's talking to, to Lana and she ends up saying, had Faith been a boy, she would have thrown her in the river like a sack of kittens, <laughs> which is fucked up all on its own. Like, there's adoption places now. I mean, I guess back then it was different, but damn, couldn't you put them out in the barn? Let them get the mice. <laughs> Why would you drown? Anyways, I guess so they wouldn't 
I read into weird things, okay? I'm a very analytical person. I've noticed this. I weird sticking points. So back in town, John goes looking for Vicky and goes to the theater. Summer of Fear is playing at the theater. A Stranger in Our House. It's another sticking point for me because that's how it's referred to in the book. Anyways, so he meets up with Vicky. Meanwhile, we see Lana in bed with a spider over her again on the ceiling. This time we see these ashy hands come into frame and grab the sides of her head and start saying, open your mouth. She does wider, wider. This is where we get the infamous fucking spider falls into her mouth and you barely see it. The falling spider looks fake. I think the spider, the quick shot with the spider, her mouth looks fake too. Um, the spider looks real to me, but maybe it's because I'm terrified of spiders. And I've always had that fear of like <laughs> swallowing a spider in my sleep, which I've probably done. Everybody's probably done it. I did notice like they purposely put her in lingerie for like the last two thirds of the movie. They did. But then there's also scenes earlier in the movie, like where, uh, Martha like goes out front to talk to Isaiah and, uh, uh, William's dad and she's got a shirt on. And then it cuts back to her inside, sitting down for breakfast, and she's in a fucking see-through nightgown. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's weird. But at any rate. So I guess what we're supposed to get at this point was this is a representation of some kind of evil, and now it's gotten into her. So we go back to John and Vicky with John learning to drive in the Mustang. So, of course, with him not knowing how to drive, he runs off the road, nearly hits a tree, and they start getting frisky. And we cut to Melissa grabbing a knife, looking kind of controlly. Well, controlled. Duh. I know enunciate good. We've talked about this and we cut back to them. They're still making out, but then we see Melissa. Now she's walking through the woods, cut back to them. They're still making out and they start hearing noises outside. So it does the straight up slasher cliche thing of John going to investigate. And, uh, he comes back and well, this fucking head cut off. No, nothing happened to him. (laughs) Uh, but he comes back and she's like, did you find anything out there? And he goes, only ghosts and goblins game came out four years later don't know did some googling found nothing but i thought it was a really weird particular way of saying that ghosts and goblins if i'm gonna assume that was a saying back then because nobody saw this fucking movie and that may have been it because you know me i'm like arcade game nothing to do with each other Do you use a typewriter like to to search for things? I type so slow that the keystrokes reverberate because there's so much time between them. Oh, okay. okay. (laughs) But he gets back in the car and they go back to making out. So we see John get the shit stabbed out of him through the convertible top because the Mustang's a convertible. And then we see the same gloved hands, which like you said earlier, I think it is, is the whole time, um, pouring gasoline all over the back of the car. Because when they went to town earlier, she tells the guy, fill up the car and this gas can. So this was real convenient for whoever the killer is and about to be real inconvenient for Vicky because she just thought she had extra gas to drive back to L.A. No, she's about to be in a fucking Michael Bay film. Um, (laughs) This is actually one of my other favorite scenes in the movie. I thought this was done kind of cool. Yeah. And it was creative. She does the smart thing that nobody ever does in horror movies. She doesn't scream. She doesn't freak out. She doesn't run away. She hits the fucking gas. Right. And starts driving off. Well, as that's happening, the gas that was poured gets lit and we have the scene with the car and this is all at night, the car driving away and the trail of gas on fire chasing her. If I remember correctly, isn't the gas can standing up and her driving is what makes it tip over and pour like the whole thing was fucking MacGyver final destination (laughs) out. It may have been, but she ends up going to turn around and get stuck in a rut. And just as she gets out of the rut, the trail reaches the car and then we get 
what I joked about the Michael Bay explosion shot. Cause as soon as the trail of fire reaches the car, the whole thing explodes. I was actually shocked. They killed her. I thought she was going to get out there and they did a good job with the tension in the rut because she like, she got stuck just enough times and almost got out just enough times for it to not get old and overplayed. Yep. You know, so they did a good job on that. Yeah. It was just enough that I was, is she going to make it? She's not. Is she going to make it? She's not. Oh, she's going to make it. Oh, she just blew up. <laughs> yeah. I, honestly, I thought all, all the girls were going to make it in this movie. I just didn't see it being that kind of movie. So no. it kind of shocked me. But we cut back to Lana making Martha a snack and it's fucked up, man. Okay. If anybody wants to email, tweet, whatever, she asks her if she wants what she wants. She just says peanut butter and jelly. And she goes in the kitchen. She's getting the stuff out and she's pouring a glass of milk. And while she's pouring, she goes, do you want this on toast? Does are peanut toasted peanut butter and jelly sandwiches a thing? Cause that just seems so weird to me. I mean, I've put peanut butter on toast all day long and I've put jelly on toast. Oh my God. Why have I never thought of combining the two? I've never <laughs> combined the two. I mean, I'm sure if you had it both ways, <laughs> I've had it all kinds of ways, sir. <laughs> yeah, Jesus Christ. But no, seriously, I I've eaten. I mean, I primarily eat toast with jelly on it, but you know, when, no. I actually care about exercising and working out. I put peanut butter on fucking everything for protein. And I've, I've done that. And uh, yeah, why not put it together? People already eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Mm. I don't know what I'm going to try tomorrow before I go to work. Deep thoughts. But at any rate, the milk that she's pouring is fucking blood. And she looks down at the glass and sees it, drops the glass. It shatters. Martha comes in and grabs her. Lana starts freaking out. She's like, he did this to me. And because... <sighs> It's not so much what her character says, but how she acts. You can already tell something's having an effect on her. And she starts to kind of have a breakdown. And Martha starts locking up the front door. And Lana's like, oh, it's no use. He can come in whenever he wants. Like, okay. So now we know that you're fucking, you're not just freaky. Like something's really going on here. So Martha goes into her bedroom. And when she opens the door, a fucking scarecrow comes flying out. And it's on this rope rig to where it flies out when she opens the door, like super jump scare thing. Is this how the Hittites handle things on their own? <laughs> we'll get him, Sheriff. We'll yeah. scare the shit out of him. <laughs> well, see, MacGyver was a Hittite. There's a, there's this book. No, <laughs> anyways. So as she's investigating the scarecrow, she realizes that it's the suit of her dead fucking husband and it's got the fucking flower on it and shit. So she goes to the grave and the fucking graves dug open. You can see the coffin down below and she sees the screw sitting on the ground. She's like, Oh crap. It's like open, open. And she goes down there and she opens up the coffin and the fucking hero of Hyrule starts throwing chickens at her. <laughs> I'm sorry, but all these chickens come flying out and me and the wife both at the same time said, just like Zelda. <laughs> but it's weird. It's like, and when we were talking about it later, I'm like, hey baby, what, which was it? Deadly blessing or serpent in the rainbow where there's chickens coming out of the ground. <laughs> Cause it could have been either movie, but at any rate. So this is the part where I got confused, and I want to ask you about this. I actually am glad to hear you say that, because the editing to me was fucking shit from this point on, and I got confused for like I had to go back and rewatch the movie because I feel like it cut poorly. Yeah, still, still odd editing in his films at this point, which isn't his fault, but still. Um, but she goes running, I guess, into Faith's barn because she goes in and there's all the paintings, and that's the part that I'm. Or did Faith put her paintings in her barn? But then we get a shot here coming up where uh, her mom comes out on the porch and that's their house. So I guess they're, they they're next door neighbors. The, yeah. They are next door neighbors. I remember them saying that specifically. So but it's I don't never, know. I needed like one good aerial shot to kind of map this out. <laughs> they didn't have drones yet, brother. <laughs> At any rate, 
So she finds this fucking creepy ass painting and it's Martha in a wedding dress and a fucking headless groom. But she looks down and there's a picture of her and her husband. It's like, hmm, this is pretty fucked up. And she spins around and she bumps into Jim's strung up fucking corpse. But Melissa comes walking up and she's like Frankenstein's monster slash witch. Cause she's like walking with her hands out and like doing the, I'll never tell shit with her hands. <laughs> and she's like saying scripture and shit and banishing the demons, the unclean demons from the land and shit. And I didn't write down what she says, but it's something like that. But Louise comes running out. She attacks Melissa while this is going on. Faith all of a sudden jumps out and attacks Martha. Martha ends up grabbing a rock, smacks Faith in the head with it. They roll over, and in the struggle, Faith's shirt is toward wide open, revealing the chest of a man. Holy shit, Faith's a dude. And that's why we had all the setup with Mom about, you know, oh, had she been a boy? Had this, like, you're like, oh, damn. It was in our face the whole time. But Faith ends up saying, I wouldn't hurt you. I only hurt the ones that were keeping us apart. And her mom drops down with her as Martha runs off. She's like, I tried to be a little girl just to go ahead and kind of put a bow on that. Like, yeah, it's really what you think it is. Faith ends up saying to Louisa, like, you're the one who uh, sent the snake after Martha. One of the two in conversation with him sitting on the ground. We find this shit out. So it's like, hmm. So it's not the Hittite. Well, we know it's the Hittite, but it's them. What's the involvement here? Then mother of the year here, Louisa says that she could never have had her because she's carrying Jim's child. Once again, fucked up people. So Martha makes it back to the house to get Lana. They're going to try to fucking escape. All of a sudden, there's a shotgun blast through the fucking front door. Martha returns fire with the pistol that she was shooting earlier. Gets all quiet. She goes for the phone. Just as she goes for the phone, fucking Faith bursts through the window, stabbing at her. Martha shoots her. Then Louisa bursts in through the front door, if I remember right. She attacks Martha. Who threw down the gun. That's important. It's like she blows Faith away and she's like, oh, threat resolved and throws the gun down. I don't, I know why it's fixing to happen here, but I didn't like it. So as she's fighting with Louisa, they end up in the bedroom and Louisa's got her pinned down and is about to bash her head in with a broken off uh, thing off the bed. What the bedpost? Posts on bed are called <laughs> bedpost. She's about to bash her head in with the bedpost and all of a sudden fucking Lana comes in, shoots her ass, blowing her away, saving the day. So I guess it's a good thing she threw the gun down. Martha goes back into the living room and ah, Faith jumps from my, there's a, I'm making fun of it because there's so many, ah, the killer's not dead. <laughs> this is the moment when the supposedly dead killer comes back for one last scare. <laughs> so Faith jumps up from behind the couch and uh, she's got knife in hand, ready to come down on Martha. And all of a sudden she's stabbed in the back by Melissa, the cousin fucker. <laughs> <laughs> Isaiah comes in. Messenger of the incubus is dead. She drops the knife. We fade to the next morning with Lana leaving. Martha goes back inside because this is, we're putting a bow on it. Okay. Lana's going back to LA. Well, Vicky's not because she's dead. Right. Um, <laughs> there is no car no more. So she's riding away with the sheriff. And with what, what Isaiah said to Melissa, you know, it's all over like, oh fuck. So it was faith the whole time. She quote unquote was the problem, um, which turns the whole thing on its ear. There is, it is left kind of open ended at this point. But uh, Martha goes back inside, and as soon as she goes inside, the house goes dark. Like, there's still sunlight coming through some windows and shit, but everything fades out. And she sees the ghost of Jim in the kitchen, like, kitchen's, like, back behind the living room and shit. And he tells her, beware of the incubus. The house starts to fucking shake. The floor rips open. This horrible puppet creature thing that doesn't get a lot of screen time 
thankfully grabs Martha, pulls her back in, drag me to hell style. The floor repairs itself. Lights come back on. We get a out of focus shot focusing into a spider on a web. And then there's a crane shot. Narrator comes back in. I didn't note all this, but that's pretty much it. It closes with that. So you're to think, holy shit, the crazy ass Hittites were right all along. That part of it I like, but uh, just a few quick notes. Craven did the rewrite on the movie. It was already written when it was given to him, but he did do a rewrite on it. This was Sharon Stone's first speaking role. She had been in one non-speaking role before this. She did have an acting coach on set. She demanded that the spider be defanged. She yeah. was not cool with working with spiders. The incubus was added at the end. Craven was against it the whole time. I would have been against it too. <laughs> it, it almost kind of looked like a plague doctor garb. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's so quick. I didn't try to like play it in slow mo or anything, yeah. but it looked like it was just like a, the black pointy hat, like the plague doctor mask and a stuff like bit. that. And just robes. I don't know. Yeah, it was like Nightmare on Elm Street later. He's like, no, the movie's done. We don't need this. And somebody's like, oh, no, no, no. We got to have a gotcha moment at the end. So we know the incubus is real. The only cool part about that shot to me was the floorboards going back into place. I thought looked kind of awesome. Oh, or they just did the reverse shot from where yeah. it had been blown open. This is where Sharon Stone and Mimi met, um, which, of course, years later during Deadly Friend is when Mimi filed for divorce. And it's been alleged many times that Mimi and Stone were actually together together and that she was having an affair from Craven. Um, Craven has been asked this in a few interviews and I think in one of them he sits and is like do I sit in bedrooms and watch what people do or something like that but there's the whole big deal that the way she sent the the letter to him or whatever she sent it with dead black roses and everybody's like oh that sounds like a very Sharon Stone thing to do and it's like no it really did come because there was a rumor saying that Sharon Stone sent him dead roses after news was released that he was getting divorced and he corrected that in an interview he's like no those came from Mimi but it sounds like something Sharon Stone would have told her to do. <laughs> I didn't know Sharon Stone was in a chicks. I didn't either. Well, and see, and that's the, that's the rumor. The interview that I was watching with Craven, the way he answers, he's like, they were very close friends. Okay. Like even given the opportunity to say they were into each other, he didn't. And I don't know if that speaks to his character or if it's people make up shit and it gets out of control. They could have right. just been good friends for all we know. I don't know. I didn't like the movie that much. It did feel like an early era slasher film, like I said earlier. And then it had that religious horror thing. And I don't know if Wes Craven was maybe trying to get, you know, his own Rosemary's baby or exorcist out of it. Like, Oh, I'll do a, I'll do a religious horror movie. Um, I feel like the religious horror movie parts of the movie were the worst of it. Like you could have left the end incubus scene out and, Lana getting possessed out and it would have just been a fucking slasher movie that ended up with the surprise. It's a guy slasher, right? Yeah. Which this is what, like two years before sleepaway camp came out. Right. I think it came out in 83. Okay. So was that influenced by this? Like, was that the idea? And they just been. went with it and rolled with it because really it feels like that style slasher movie also because sleepaway camp is another one of those, POV, you don't know who the killer is. Yeah. And you just see the deeds getting done. And you literally, I could take this movie and re-edit it right now and make it a slasher movie without <laughs> filming scenes. Well, and I totally agree with everything you just said. The only thing that I, except for one thing, that I love the thing that at the end, when the, the incubus is revealed, you get to go, holy shit, crazy ass Isaiah has been right the whole time. 
I yeah, like I mean, that twist, but they could have found a different way to package that. Because, I mean, obviously the Hittites were supposed to be the misdirection. You think one of them is the slasher. Yeah. Killing everybody, right? And it wasn't. It was the unassuming neighbor that barely even pops up in the movie. Well, the thing is, is with the whole thing we see with Melissa with the knife, I think we've had multiple Hittites doing the killing, trying to stop the incubus. That's how I took it. That it's every time something happens, one of them knows it's their duty to go try to stop it. See, I just thought and, it was her killing people the whole time. Ah, see, I don't, I don't even think it was her. I think she, because the thing is, is she's a he. Yeah. So if quote unquote, she's the messenger, but she's really a he, that doesn't even work with the premise between an incubus versus a succubus. Right. So, and that, it goes down a whole speculative path, but I really think we're supposed to believe that the Hittites all know, like when they say, we'll deal with this and tell the sheriff to go, like someone has to kill people until we figure out which one's the messenger. Okay. Basically. And they were still wrong because obviously the incubus came back and grabbed Martha. Right. And that's what I'm saying. I love that idea. I just hate it does the incubus suddenly popping out of the floor feels like a totally different movie. And that's what I was going to say. It's the diffusion of purpose thing again. Like the movie was a religious horror movie and a slasher movie at the same time. And they took away from each other. Honestly, in my opinion. I like the mix. I don't think it came out. It could have used five more minutes in the oven. Or maybe maybe it used five minutes too much in the oven. But I think I think what came out, I like it. I if it didn't look like Little House on the Prairie, I'd like it even more. <laughs> I didn't figure this out when I was watching the movie, and I didn't really figure it out listening to you. What made Sharon Stone's character not possessed anymore? I don't know because there at the end, when all hell breaks loose, like uh, Martha's grabbing her and dragging her out of bed, like literally dragging her. And we had a setup earlier in the evening with early in the evening, earlier in the movie with the take lots with alcohol where she's boozing it up and taking pills. So she may have self sedated to the point that she's just passed the fuck out. Yeah. The movie's all over the place. It's that a lot of Wes Craven's earlier movies suffer from that. I feel like. Yeah. Well, and and he didn't do all the writing, so I can't hang it all on him, but no, you definitely can't. Yeah. A rewrite can only do so much. Yeah. But definitely a stepping stone in his career where we went from shock and exploitation to basically a, an homage to Texas Chainsaw, then more of a straight-up slasher with a crazy twist. And the very next year, his career takes a way different turn into 82's Swamp Thing. I'm pretty excited to cover this one. This movie is a cult classic, right? Didn't do well when it first came out, but <laughs> it got popular as time went on. And it did spawn a sequel and a TV series that was related off of it. The original USA TV series. And the animated TV And the series. animated cartoon, which I fucking loved that when I was a kid. It had all the action figures and shit. And, you know, Swamp Thing's kind of relevant now because of the current show. Yeah. Which is so good, guys. I got to finish. I got a couple to go. We were going to put people in the stairs in this episode. And I wanted to knock it off and put it on there. Because, one, I don't know where else I would put a fucking Swamp Thing movie. And, two... It's interesting because this is his first, like, supposed to have been a big movie and a step outside of his usual, right? Yeah, it was a step, all right. Because <laughs> <laughs> Swamp Thing is a dark and horror-like DC comic. Yeah. Right? And it's really funny if you think about James Wan, you know, did the horror movies and always wanted to do something different and then got to make a DC movie that made over a billion dollars. And you got Wes Craven who wanted to make things other than horror and he got to do a comic book movie. And it's just interesting to see how that path can split. Yeah. Right. Cause it was, it was a parallel in the two separate directions, <laughs> but the comic was written by Lynn wine 
And the movie's written and directed by Wes Craven. He said in an interview that I saw, he had never heard of Swamp Thing. You know, he knew of comic characters, but he read every issue to make the movie. So, I mean, I appreciate that. The man man has his craft, right? I liked seeing Ray Wise in the movie. I hadn't seen the movie in so long. I don't think I knew who Ray Wise was (laughs) when I saw it. And he's he's perfect as Dr. Alec Holland in the movie. But I always think of him for the show Reaper. Yeah. Because he's the devil. You know, he's fucking hilarious in that show. Yeah, he's he's in a bunch of shit. A lot of shit. You have Adrienne Barbeau in the movie as Alice Cable, and she's in shit tons of horror movies. She was in The Fog, Escape from New York, which wasn't horror, but you know you always got to throw that in there. Yeah. Creep Show, which I think was the same year as this movie. I think so. Which also features a plant, man. I'm just saying. True. And The Thing. And the comic. It's a comic-themed thing, too. It's also a DC comic. So There we go again. And uh, she's the computer's voice in The Thing. Okay. Yeah, which kind of, I didn't actually know that. And she was Catwoman a lot in the Batman cartoons, which is kind of neat. Okay. But yeah, <laughs> so, she she was everywhere in the Right, movies. right. She she always just fucking pops out at me. And so the rest of these, I'll, I'll probably just mention them as they go. But that, that's your, your main cast there with a couple of extras that are going to pop up. But Craven really wanted to show that he could do more than horror. And he wanted to show that he could work with bigger actors. He could do action sequences. And he could plan out stunt scenes. He says the movie was horribly underfunded. Yeah. And they, I think they took money from him as he was making it. And it's kind of sad because I'm curious what he could have done with money back then with the property. Yeah. Because the property has been reused enough times, even currently, that people obviously like the story. Right. True. So this was, I mean, his other movies were primarily exploitation at this point and a little bit of thriller. He hadn't gotten full horror anyways. Yeah. But this was a sci-fi film more oh, than a horror yeah. film. But at the core of the movie, it's a monster movie. Yeah. I mean, he's just a monster, right? Like in the end. And we have a couple more monsters pop up. I thought this was interesting. Harry Manfredini had done the score for Friday the 13th, part one and two. And he did the score for this movie. And he did additional Friday the 13th movies after this. Okay. It's just that we only had two at this point. So this is the guy that, you know, did all the Friday the 13th music. And uh, it, you can tell if you're, if you're listening for it. Like it sounds like that style. Yeah. It's kind of neat because you get your Cunningham and Steve Miner tie-in because Steve Miner directed Friday the 13th right. Part 2. So it's like they were all still buddies and working on shit together, like porn. That's what I was going to say. Still shooting shooting porn at uh, Sean's mom's house. This is one thing I want to say about the movie. It's PG. There wasn't a PG-13 yet. It would have been PG-13, clearly, if that rating existed. But it almost feels like Wes Craven didn't know what the fuck to do with a PG movie. I can see that to a certain extent. Cause like some of the scenes, it's like he, he doesn't go far enough and some things are just kind of like, they go in an awkward way. Like there's lots of just throwing people in the water instead of killing them. Yeah. And it was almost like, can I kill people in a PG movie? Like, <laughs> I was like, you didn't know. It's like the A team. <laughs> <laughs> but the movie, I don't know. Like we we're here to talk about the director's style. It still had that like seventies, early eighties style of Wes Craven. I felt like even though it was a completely different genre but it also felt kind of transitional it is that old last house on the left hills have eyes style but you're starting to see some things in his directorial style that start popping up in nightmare on elm street which is not far after this i totally agree with that it's it's weird because the movie feels like it bounces back and forth between one scene feeling like it it took place before deadly blessing and then the next scene feeling like it's more modern like you could have walked in on that shot or sequence and been like oh any any director in the 80s would have done that it's weird it goes back and forth to me it's like he was trying to figure out 
and finalize his craft at this point. Yeah. But he had to do it on a comic book movie that could have been a big budget movie that was PG. So it's like he's he, he thinks he's figured it out, but he's having to do it on something completely alien to him, you know? Also in the South, in very shitty conditions. Yeah, it's supposed to be in Louisiana, but they actually shot it in South Carolina, I yeah. think. But there's still fucking gators and poisonous snakes and mosquitoes and deer. (laughs) They all bitched about deer flies. I remember that. Like, that's in the movie, too. (laughs) But the movie opens up with a little title card on the screen. And it says, not long ago in the unexplored reaches of an unmapped swamp, the creative genius of one man collided with another's evil dream and a monster was born. Too powerful to be destroyed, too intelligent to be captured. This being still pursues its savage dream. And I guess it's just like a reference like to the comic part of yeah. Swamp Thing. But we see a United States Coast Guard chopper flying over the swamp. Or it could be, you know, a scene from Platoon. It could go either way. Because you <laughs> see camouflage soldiers with like fucking twigs and leaves and sticks and shit sticking out of their camo. Yeah. Sneaking around, led by Krug. David Hess made it into this fucking movie. So I'm probably going to say Krug and gang a lot in the movie because they're around. And, um, yeah, he's like the Kmart Rambo. Yeah. And his fucking name's ferret in the movie <laughs> and I refuse to call him ferret. So I'm just going to call him Krug. I well, think from this point, well, then we have weasel in last house. It wasn't him, but we had weasel in last house and now we have a ferret. I'm just going to call him Krug. Okay. <laughs> it's more fitting to his character. Oh Lord. And it has Alice cable on board. So we're introduced to her, but we keep hearing that Alice is replacing someone who was eaten by a fucking gator. And there's like a dude quitting. He's getting in the chopper as she's getting out of it. Yeah. And apparently they're not happy that a woman's here to work with Dr. Holland. Yeah. They got a high turnover rate. Now they're getting this. <laughs> Jesus, Josh. Oh, no, no. I mean, from their point of view. And it, it's really the line is out of place in, until you kind of like figure out why later. But we have another one of those like shitty early era Craven like cuts where it just randomly pops to the fucking jungle. And it's, it's not that the scene's edited poorly. It just, feels like what we came from and where we ended up just didn't go together. It's very jarring. Yes. But you see a guy in a button up walking through the swamp and Krug and crew just fucking surround him, smack him around a bit and attack him using a fucking snake as a weapon. Just, just like Hills. (laughs) He grabs the fucking snake and he like slaps him in the face with it. And I think we're supposed to believe that it bit him on the cheek, even though it looks like shit. (laughs) And, I don't know. I was wondering, because this is that Sector 3 that's about to pop up in a minute, and I was wondering if this is where they're set up, and they're making things look like accidents, so one guy got eaten by a gator trying to fix the sensor, and then this guy's out there working, and he gets bit by a poisonous snake and dies, and it could be like a cover-up, because the bad guy, I know more about this from the comic books, and, and I fucking... I love these movies when I was a kid and the cartoon and stuff. So I know a good bit, but Anton Arcane, the main bad guy, he's like runs a paramilitary group in okay. this movie basically. Right. So yeah. like, I guess they're like special forces kind of, and they could be trying to black op shit. I don't know. I don't Maybe I'm, I might be reading really hard in just a <laughs> shitty scene. Did you see this movie before this episode? No, I think when we first looked at the list, I glossed over Swamp Thing because I'm because, oh, that's not horror. And I kept going. And then when it was like listening to the book and stuff and it's like, man, this motherfucker like did Swamp Thing. And you're like, dude, it's a monster. We have to do this. And the other movies are crappy. And I'm like, well, we could do a crappy revisited. Like, okay, we're going to do this. 
Oh, I was doing Swamp Thing. Like, I came and in this, hard with that. <laughs> this was so off my fucking radar, man. I never even knew about this until we were getting ready for this podcast. I could see this movie probably being hard to watch this year, this time frame. Yeah, this is one of those that me watching it, I ain't going to lie, it did not hold my interest. I may have even taken bathroom breaks without pausing it. Um, so I watched a lot of USA when we were kids. That's how I used to watch a lot of my horror movies, like USA Up All Night and stuff. Exactly. Not me. I was in the sticks and you had cable. Right, right. So when you spend the <laughs> night, you'd watch it with me. But USA made the Swamp Thing TV show, which was a direct carryover from Return of Swamp Thing, which was a sequel to this movie. So I guess USA yeah. had the rights to all of it. So they would like almost every fucking weekend, like on the Saturday, on Saturday, play the Swamp Thing movies. Okay. So I watch these things fucking all the time. So obviously I see the movie with rose colored goggles and I'm part of that like cult following <laughs> that just likes it from being a child, you know. But anyways, I've derailed enough. Yeah, I'm the guy that says this has not aged well. <laughs> <laughs> But we go back to the base and we see Alice with Charlie and we quickly notice that she knows her shit because she knows about all the equipment. She knows how to use it. She's like, oh, this model has this problem. And he's like, yeah, we're experiencing that. She knows how to fix it. And she sees that there's a problem with sector three, right? And Alice asks Charlie about the project and is told that it's all hush hush. Something doing plants. We're now introduced to Ritter, who's got this goofy hat and fucking sunglasses on. But I guess it's the swamp, right? We're supposed to just go with it. And we find out he's the like the project manager. He's in charge of everything. And Charlie says that he thinks that uh, Arcane might be on to him. And Ritter lets him know that I thought Arcane was dead. And it's a really kind of a shitty way to introduce you to the Arcane character because they just kind of throw it in there. Okay. You know how they always say like you should make the movie like somebody hasn't read the book or the comic book? Yeah. He didn't do that. <laughs> with this movie, I feel like, because he doesn't even, I don't even think he ever says Anton in the movie. His name's Anton Arcane, and he's the main bad guy. And in the TV show, we have Abby Arcane. That's yeah. the main, Dr. Arcane, she's the main girl. That's his daughter, if I remember correctly, from the comic book. Okay. So I don't know, because they haven't mentioned Anton Arcane in the show as far as where I'm at yet. Isn't even more so, isn't Alice in the movie like an amalgamation of two characters from yes. the comic book? Yes. So he took some liberties. But I just think it's really interesting to have like a main character and you just throw his name in there like that. True. Don't explain it. But anyways, Alice is brought into the lab where she's introduced to Dr. Alec Holland and his sister, Dr. Linda Holland, who's apparently pretty smart. He's got an IQ like a phone number. And she talks to him, finds out somewhere in all this that like their dad was like a Nobel Prize winning famous scientist. And you kind of get the feeling that Alec's pretty eccentric, right? Yeah. But Cable keeps talking about the sensor in sector three need to be fixed. They're like, why don't you go fix it? And she has no fucking clue how to get around the place. Yeah. And Alec volunteers to give her a tour of the swamp and that Ritter will love it because he's always wanting him to get out of the lab and he'll take her. Right. But he's showing her flowers and talking about how wonderful the swamp is. I know it's really weird. And he's, uh, he thinks he's got some slick moves. Yeah. She's not impressed. Right. <laughs> like it's not working on her at all. And I guess it's supposed to be like a, he's the, the big brainy geeky scientist and doesn't know how to act around a woman, right? But they find the sensor and it's, it's been sabotaged. Like somebody took it apart, fucked up the inside and put it back together. Oh, right? is the, and this like the spray painted basketball looking thing? Sure. <laughs> this is his first big budget film here, Josh. You can't, you can't make fun of the effects like that. <laughs> hey, fuck the effects. I'm making fun of the prop department. <laughs> <laughs> but they, uh, they head back to the base and Ritter's fucking pissed. Because him and the guards didn't get to go with Holland and they need to be protecting them at all times. And this is why I didn't want a woman working around him. Ah. So that's where like the, the sexist comment came out earlier, I guess, is they know that he gets distracted easily by pretty girls. 
Oh, uh, girl? <laughs> and they like to keep him locked up in the lab with the sister just fucking working all the time, right? Yeah. But while they're all talking, they hear what sounds like gunshots going off inside the lab. They come running in, guns drawn, and find that Linda has figured out that their reagent. I'm the, so glad you put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> that they were, I could not do it after Reanimator, man. Thank you. That they were working on. Uh, works like the snap popper things, you know, that you'd get as a kid on 4th of July, you just throw yeah. them on the ground and they pop. And uh, she's like dipping her fingers in there and slinging it on the floor to demonstrate. <laughs> and I'm like, if that shit explodes that easy, should you just dip your naked fingers in there? Alice says she knew they were working on weapons here. Like she just knew that's what, because they keep referring to DC in the movie and Washington and she works for the government. So this is well, obviously yeah, and, a government funded project. And like when the boat comes up, they quickly run out and throw netting over it. It's, it's all supposed to be on the DL. But Alec lets her know, no, we're working on plants. And he takes her into like another room where they're making the formula and where he's got like his fucking results from tests they've ran and plants everywhere. And we find out that he's working on a plant cell he's created by mixing it with like an animal nucleus. Right. And he says it makes the plant super aggressive like an animal and it could grow in environments that it, it shouldn't like you could grow plants in a desert. They would get extra large and basically he can cure famine this way because of how many people are going to be on the earth in 2020, which is what he specifically said. Uh, and see, uh, now it's I'll a different approach than Thanos used in Avengers. <laughs> By killing off half the world's population. But see, this shit sounds like a bad idea because they're actually where they shot this was near the island where they were researching fucking Lyme disease and released those damn ticks. Jesus Christ. <laughs> what movie is that? That's real life. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's always a bad idea, man. It's always a bad idea. What are you talking about with mutated ticks? Lyme disease? Okay, so the deer tick carries Lyme disease? Yeah. That that was being researched in a fucking lab on an island off the coast of the Carolinas. Oh, okay. And the theory is that, oops, they got out, and that's why that there's such a bad problem with Lyme disease post this lab uh, going down. Just like with fucking Africanized bees. Like, these angry bees make more honey. European bees are nice, but don't make a lot of honey. Let's splice them together and see what happens. Hopefully, we don't let them free. Oops. <laughs> I feel like we've gone into the last podcast on the left conspiracy theory territory here. This is not conspiracy, sir. This is fact. That's what all conspiracy theorists say. But Cable makes some sort of joke at Alex's expense, and he pouts off like an emo kid. And Conformist. <laughs> shit. <laughs> and he ends up wandering into the room where Linda was splashing, you know, the volatile formula with her fingertips onto the ground. And... It grew giant plants, and this has only been minutes, right? Oh, shit. So they must be on to something. And then we get this really cringy kiss scene where Alec, like, he calls for his sister, and then he just grabs Cable and just starts fucking forcing himself on her kissing. So once again, Wes Craven with the dude forcing himself <laughs> on a woman. But Linda comes in, and she has this weird look on her face, and she's like, oh. And it's almost like she's fucking jealous, which I didn't really kind of get that. Yeah. Or maybe she's just concerned for her brother kissing a girl. I don't fucking know. It's but, Wes Craven. Maybe he was thinking there was dark stuff going on between the brother and sister. I mean, we had fucking cousins going to get married in the previous movie. Man, you went to a dark place there. That's his fault. Jesus. But she looks at them like, oh, and then she looks down and goes, oh, because she sees the plants have grown, you know, <laughs> and scientist brain kicks in and she's more concerned yeah. with the plants again. And uh, they send Cable to go get, <laughs> he calls her Cable through the whole movie and it's like a comic book nerd. It really bothers me because I keep thinking of Cable from the X-Force. <laughs> 
And I, I wrote my notes as Alice, but he calls her Cable the whole time. So I'm okay. just kind of going to go with it. But uh, he sends Cable to go get Ritter since he's the project manager and, and show what they've discovered. And she's walking around. The base seems kind of emptied out. And then she notices Charlie being killed on a security camera. I think at like Sector 3 again. <laughs> damn Sector 3. And uh, Krug and company kind of swarm in on the base. And they get Alice. And she tries to resist. And he does a fucking mean karate chop on her fucking neck, knocks her out, and he uses her fingerprints, like her hand, to get the scanner open. Okay. And I will say that she has a badass scene in here, though, where she, like, takes out a couple of the guys using the gun, and she's, like, the action star of the movie, (laughs) before fucking Krug disarms her, by the way. Because, you know, he's a badass, right? Fucking ferret. (laughs) Fucking name is that. But, um... Hey, man, ferrets fight with no rules. But Krug's got, you know, Cable, and he's got the Hollins, and he's got them all pinned down the lab, and then Ritter comes in. And he appears to be working with the bad guys, and Alex kind of upset with him. But then we get the Scooby Doo ending, and he pulls the fucking mask off, and it's actually Arcane Donna. <laughs> I don't know. It's just fucking like, you fucking Mission Impossible pulled that mask <laughs> off. And, I don't know. It just really seemed like really out of place, cloak and dagger, but I don't know. <laughs> Wes Craven wanted to show what he could do with the, with the action scenes in a spy movie, right? So, yeah, maybe he was overreaching a little in parts. But he's trying to use Linda as leverage to get the formula and all of the notes, which we saw her like hide one of the journals when everybody started coming in. Oh, okay. And, you know, of course, Alex is going to try to protect his sister. And she tries to make a run for it and gets shot in the back and killed. Then Arcane grabs Alec and lets him know what's best for him. Best for you is not to be born, but the second best for you is to die soon. And Anton Arcane is played by Louis Jordan. And he was like a big theatrical actor. And he was like in some James Bond movies as like a villain. Oh, okay. And like a bunch of big shit. He was probably actually the most famous person in the movie. At the time. And maybe even Ray Wise. But now that Linda's dead, Alec tries to grab the formula, make a run for it. But he gets his ass beaten by fucking Krug and drops the formula, which explodes. And he bursts into these badass looking green flames. (laughs) This part looks really cool. And he's running for his life and fleeing. Everybody gets fucked out of his way because he's on fire running and he dives into the swamp. And I guess he's like assumed for dead. You do see him kind of combing the lake and stuff later because it quickly cuts to daytime. Yeah. But during the commotion, Cable hides while Arcane's men are searching for anything they can find. And Krug finds her and takes her away on a boat. Oh, you just won't say ferret. It's just a terrible name. <laughs> and I mean, I can't look at David Hess and not think of Krug. I know, especially given recently. Right, right. <laughs> but she tries to get away from him and then and dives into the water and he ends up grabbing her and fucking trying to drown her, right? He thinks he killed her. Say hello to your boyfriend, baby. And then Swamp Thing grabs Ferret. There you go. I did one for you. And <laughs> fucking yanks him into the swamp. And then you see him, you know, coming up on shore with Cable, like off in the distance, right? Yeah. And this is what I was talking about earlier, like Craven not knowing what to do with a PG movie. Like, you just fucking like, oh, I'll just yank him in the water and leave him here. <laughs> and, uh, well, we've already had the setup that there's snakes. There must be snakes underwater biting. Right. And the gator, the gator <laughs> the could gator. come for him. <laughs> but uh, Krug sends his men after Swamp Thing. And he just picks them off one by one, and he just keeps, like, just fucking throwing them. It's like he just throws everybody everywhere, throws them in the water, throws them in a tree, and knocks them out. Again, it's A-Team. <laughs> and I guess superheroes generally don't kill people unless it's the Punisher. But Ferret and Bruno, who's, like, the, his, like, sidekick, right? Like, he's the big, goofy-looking, bald guy, which he's also, uh, he was in, he's, I think his name was Polly. He's in Darkman. 
Okay. That, that's the only other thing I knew him from. I was like, hey, it's the dude from Darkman. That's something that I have not seen him forever and only seen once. I can, Liam Neeson, Sam Raimi, how can you go wrong? I need to watch that. But I love this lot. I, I wish I could remember the exact events of how the soldiers got taken out. But like Ferret and Bruno are trying to figure out where everyone's at. And they're like, Danny went here and Tyrone did this. And they're like, no, no, no. Danny shot Tyrone, remember? Because one of the guys shoots his own men during the <laughs> fight. Like they're, they're not very good bad guys. No. But then we cut to what I'll refer to as Castle Arcane, but it's Arcane's giant mansion. <laughs> and he's doing research over Alex Notes with Mimi Craven. I don't know if it's like it's supposed to be his assistant or his girlfriend or what. They don't really go into that that much. Who was actually Mimi Myers at the time, if I remember correctly. Okay. But while he's going over the notes, he gets a call about an attack at the swamp and he finds out that Cable got away and he's pissed about that because she knows too much basically at this point, right? Yeah. We cut to Cable and she finds a gas station and meets this boy named Jude who's fucking, his story lines in this movie are great. Like he's, <laughs> he is awesome. I'm more upset that why is there this service station just in the middle of the swamp? It feels so out of place. Like they've set it up that they're doing this secret research project way off in the middle of nowhere, right next to this gas station and road. <laughs> I mean, honestly, though, we don't know how long she swam and ran. True. So she could have been gone for a while. Also, I he has a boat and like there's docks. And I'm assuming he's a gas station primarily for gassing up the boats. Fuck, I didn't even think of that. Fishermen, you know, things I don't, like that. I don't boat, so my brain I don't either, but that's just kind of where my brain went on it. Okay. He only has this one acting credit, and apparently he was in the, uh, I guess, the Shout Factory Blu-ray release of the movie. They they okay. interviewed him. I couldn't find the interview online. I don't I don't own the Shout Factory version of Swamp Thing. <laughs> I haven't picked that one up You're yet. You're not one of the four people? <laughs> okay, that was me being an asshole. I'm sorry. Uh, this movie actually has a huge cult following. I know. But he lets her use the phone and she calls in, you know, some hush hush secret DC number and gives like her access code or clearance code. And she says she needs to talk to her next up supervisor, right? Her yeah. superior. And they're like, oh, you need to talk to Ritter. And she's like, Ritter might have been compromised because she has no clue about the Scooby Doo ending. Yeah, right. <laughs> Real quick, doesn't when she's walking up though, doesn't he say something like, "Oh no, here comes trouble" or something yeah. like that? <laughs> he just has like random fucking doily lines that are fantastic. <laughs> but uh she is transferred to Arcane's limo. He does have a phone in there apparently. And as soon as he figures out Big who it is, pimpin'. he 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 his voice changes and he sounds like Ritter, right? Yeah. He's like, you know, were you able to retrieve anything? Are you safe? And she lets him know that she has the notebook and her exact location. And then they have like uh, the fucking Coke ad, <laughs> right? Cause like he's drinking a Coke and then she wants a Coke and she can't make the machine work. And you got to punch it. Right. And she's drinking the Coke and we see the limo pull up and the camo vehicle with fucking ferret and Bruno in it. So she knows something's up and asks, <laughs> I'm trying to remember she says like, do you guys have a gun in this place or something? And he's like, I got to derail you. You talked about the Coke scene. So have you seen the Stranger Things new Coke collector's pack? No. It comes with two bottles of like Coke and Coke Zero with Stranger Things logos on it and a can of Coke and a can of new Coke. Like okay. it's supposedly the same old formula from when they did it because they make a big deal out of it in uh, season three. But we got that and it tastes like new Coke, you know, Pepsi. <laughs> Shit. Anyways, I just had to tell you about that. 
But Cable takes the the store's gun and tries to shoot it at the bad guys, but the gun fucking backfires on her instantly, and she makes a run for it. They could almost just not have the gun scene and just had her run. I know, right? <laughs> it's really like a worthless scene. Uh, but Krug and company chase her down with their cars, and they try to run her over, but Swamp Thing steps in front of the fucking car and just throws his hands into it and stops the car, rips the roof off and chunks it. So this motherfucker is strong. And then he begins to throw the men around again. Yeah, it goes straight. It's like, yeah, action. Oh, no, cheese. And uh, like I said, I don't think you do what to do with a PG movie, man. <laughs> uh, they open fire on him, though, and we can see that he's clearly bulletproof or the bullets just have no effect on him when they hit him. And uh, Cable runs off into the swamp after he's knocked out all the bad guys. And he walks up to her and she starts fucking shooing him. She's like, shoo, shoo, go away. And he just like smiles at her and walks off like he clearly thinks it's funny. And I guess at this point, we don't know how much of Alex in there. Yeah. Right. But Jude runs up and finds her and asks what the truck hit. It uh, hit a tree. Uh-huh. Must be one of those hidden rank eye trees. Don't seem to be there now. Yeah. But uh, Jude tells her there's like a trapper's cabin nearby. And, and that's, you know, that kind of goes with the gas station thing. Like people stop by there, get their bait, get their gas, okay. things like that. And he knows where it's at and she can get a change of clothes and some shelter there. Right. We cut back to Castle Arcane and Bruno, Ferret, and Arcane come up with a plan to go get the notebook and, and to hunt Swamp Thing down because he wants this fucking thing. Right. Because he, he figures it has something to do with Alex's experiment. Yeah. Because he knew, I mean, he knew the whole thing. He was the project lead. Yeah. He knew he was working on the shit. I don't know if he wanted it for military purposes or just so he could have the food thing and save the world. I don't know. They don't really go into his agenda. He's just the bad guy. Correct. <laughs> we cut to the next day and Jude is taking Cable to the remains of the lab in a boat. And Swamp Thing also heads there. And he's digging through the the wreckage, and he, he finds his sister's locket, and he gets sad. And there's, I think there's even a tear. So you know Alex in there at okay. this point. And Cable sees him doing it and watches him for a bit to see what he's going to do. And he keeps trying to mix the form. Like, he's trying to make something with the beakers. And I don't know if it's supposed to be a strength or just because they're, like, burnt and he's putting liquid in them. But he's, like, breaking all the beakers, like, over and over again. He can't fucking get anywhere with it. And he gets angry, and he just, Hulk smash, starts fucking wrecking the lab. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. He's big and green, gets angry and breaks <laughs> shit. I mean, come on. Oh. But he hears Cable run off, and I think he kind of sees her, and he goes chasing after. And Cable grabs the notebook because she stashed it before she went in there, and she's like, I just got to get this to Washington, right? Like, that's her only job. So she's obviously a spy or military or something because she had, like, the clearance code. She had yeah. that one scene where she knew how to use the guns and opened up on, on Krug's gang, and, and she's, like, determined to fucking get this book back. She's on a mission from God. Shit. <laughs> but Swamp Thing watches her and Jude leave, but then he sees the goons coming in after him in the water, right? So he runs in and he gets their attention, and Ferret calls for backup. So there's another boat that comes in. Might even be two. And they begin an assault on Swamp Thing. They have got, you know, all the guys are armed on the boat, and they're shooting at him, and it's not doing anything. They try to fucking ram him, and he just flips the boat over through the air. So he's, like, strong as shit. Yeah. And then Krug's like, use the grenades. So they start th- fucking chunking hand grenades. He's like, maybe it'll stun him. And he's got like a big <laughs> fucking machine gun on his boat too, right? Yeah. And then you start unloading on Swamp Thing and it at least slows him down. And they lose sight of him because like the smoke cloud. Yeah. And he ends up a- ambushing them by throwing their boats into the water. But like he, he grabs, he like throws the guys in the water, grabs the boat and chunks it into the other boat, which blows that boat up. So I guess maybe he killed those guys. 
How they might have jumped out in time. I don't know. He just throws <laughs> people in the water. Once again, I know I keep saying this, but the whole thing is very A-team-ish. And I know, I know. It's like almost made for TV. Like this this movie fit in very well on a Saturday on USA when it I watch really it. It really did. It really did. You ever seen the second one? No. It, Wes Craven had nothing to do with it, but it's like, it's the same guy playing. Oh, I, I guess I should go into that. So Ray Wise plays Dr. Alec Holland, but he does not play Swamp Thing. Yeah. Swamp Thing is played by Dick Durock. Yeah. He was a stunt guy. He was brought in to do stunts, but he looked so different from Ray Wise in the makeup because they actually had Ray Wise in the makeup and stuff originally. Yeah. And had this guy doing the stunts. They're like, fuck it. You can just play Swamp Thing, which he ended up <laughs> playing him in Return of Swamp Thing and in the TV show. So, I mean, okay. he got a good little career out of like a stunt gig, right? But yeah, it's, it's Swamp Thing and Heather Locklear's in the movie. And I don't remember if she's supposed to be the Abby fuck? Arcane or what. <laughs> And like they're in love and they have like a weird sex scene. It, it's almost like the the seashells. No, not seashells. <laughs> Wrong part of Demolition Man. It's almost like the, the virtual sex thing. And yeah, like, yeah. I think he pulls, not the wipe in the ass scene, but the, the virtual sex scene. Like he pulls like a butt off and makes her eat it. And then like, then they're like psychically linked and she sees them as Alec. It's fucking awkward. And this is like my 13 year old brain. I'm remembering this oh, off dear of. God. I haven't seen this movie in 20 fucking years. And I know I've derailed this enough, but there is a sequel and it is more uh, campy and fun than this okay. one was. And like I said, that's what led into the TV show. Gotcha. It's really funny. Cause you know, like Sharon Stone was obviously like a, like an early, you know, movie era hottie, right? Like she was always, yeah. everybody was talking about how beautiful she was. And she always played those roles and Heather Locklear, did that too, yeah. you know, and he got them both like really early on in the movies. It's kind of, I don't know. <laughs> but Cable tries to send Jude away with the book and she just like runs off a few steps and turns around and you see the boat drifting around the corner with Jude face down in it, assumed dead, right? Yeah, that happened quickly. <laughs> that escalated quickly. <laughs> and Ferret sneaks up behind her and grabs her. And then I, I guess he runs off with her because it cuts, like I said, it's fucking editing, man. It cuts to Swamp Thing and he finds Jude in the boat. And we find out that, like, and there's just blood all over Jude's face. We yeah, don't it's, know what it's obvious he's fucking dead. And uh, this at this point, we find out that Swamp Thing can actually heal people. I don't know how he knew this, but like he puts his hand on there, glows green like the goddamn reagent, and <laughs> fucking lay on hands. Ah, fucking healed him. He gets back up and he's fine. So that's a neat trick Swamp Thing can do. Yeah. When it got to that part of the movie, I was like, this is so unfair. What did that kid do? And then Swamp Thing like reaches up on him like, oh, what is he going to do? Fucking heal him? Or no, what is he going to do? Fucking bring him back to life? And then he does. Which is funny because like nobody's getting killed in this movie. Other, Well, I guess Linda got shot in the back. Yeah. Charlie was kind of like a weak kill, but we did get to see Linda get shot. But Swamp Thing's just like chunking people everywhere. And they're like, you killed the kid? You know? <laughs> So we're finding out that's what it is, man. He's got a heart of gold. He doesn't want to hurt anyone. It's that twinkle in the eye. It's that twinkle in the eye. But Jude wakes up and gives the book to Swamp Thing. Oh, shit. There goes the neighborhood. Now, how the fuck did they kill Jude on this boat and not find the fucking book that they're looking for? They're looking for one thing. <sighs> they're bad at their job. Of course, we don't even know what happened to him. I feel like there's a deleted scene I need to see. He's just late. He could have fucking hit his head on a limb when the boat went. On I know. The and, I don't know. And deleted scene may actually be very accurate there because it happens so fast in the edit. Like she hands him the book, walks off, turns around, and the boat comes around the corner, and he's like face down in it. Yeah, like ninjas. It it had to have been ninjas. <laughs> Clearly, there's, there's a uh, missing Krug is scene. Kind of like a ninja in this. He's got the karate chop. He sneaks up behind people. Speaking of Krug, we well, cut. You know, ferrets are the stealthiest animal in the animal kingdom. 
But speaking of Krug, we cut to the love boat and we see him trying to force himself on Cable. They're just on a boat rain like a yacht. And he's like, oh, come here, woman. He's like yeah. grabbing her. It doesn't, it doesn't go there though, right? But they had to have Krug being Krug. Thanks for showing some restraint this time, Wes. <laughs> Jesus. But uh, Cable knees him in the nuts and makes a run for it, dives in the water and starts swimming off the shore. Ferret swims after, but they run in a fucking swamp thing. And he gets, you know, Swamp Thing gets distracted trying to save Cable and Ferret chops one of his fucking arms off with a machete. Yeah. And then Swamp Thing grabs fucking Ferret by the top of the head like Paul in a basketball and just starts to squeeze until he kills him, right? <laughs> and at this point, you know, a horror movie director is working on the movie because that was a well done scene. You could have seen, actually, I think we do see Jason kill somebody like that in the woods at some point. Probably. Fucking Kane Hodder just popped a head like a melon or something, right? <laughs> But this causes Cable to faint. We see Arcane and the rest of the goons are on the boat. And Bruno's like, we got to get Ferret. And Arcane's like, just leave him behind. He's real loyal <laughs> to those men, right? But then Cable wakes up and she's laying on Swamp Thing's chest. And he hands her a flower, just like one of the flowers he gave her when he's giving her the tour and like, you know, terribly hitting on her. Yeah. And he gives her the same plant speech from earlier. And she figures out that it's Alec. So she's known that he was helping her earlier but she still hadn't figured out who it was yeah we then cut to cable bathing in the swamp and this scene actually there is uh <laughs> i mean there's boobs in the scene but there's a story behind the scene okay the movie was pg so apparently that scene is was cut and edited out for the most part back in the day yeah. right and when the movie got released on dvd in 2000 they accidentally printed the international version on the American disc, which it was supposed to be PG and she was naked in it. And they all had to be like fucking recalled. And it was like a big to do. Yeah. So check your closets. If you have that one. (laughs) Well, I mean like newer versions of the movie, I think they ended up putting in anyways, but. Oh really? Like, and just change the rating on it. Well, here's the thing. Like my version of the movie, I guess I should have looked at the rating on it. Like you can see her boobs in the movie, but like they made it act like they edited it down. Okay. So like maybe there was more to it than what I had, what I saw. Cause it was just like a quick side boob thing, right? Like you see, okay. which was, might be okay in PG 13 movies. I don't even know how that fucking works. Yeah. And who knows given the time that it happened, but it's like the, uh, teen wolf, the guy that stands up on the bleachers and drops his pants and shows his wang. And nobody noticed that that made it into the movie until the fucking DVD release. Right. Cause it was a uh, <laughs> higher res. Yeah. It's funny saying higher res when you're talking about a DVD, but, uh, <laughs> But yeah, so Cable's bathing in swamp water, which I don't even know if you can do that. I wouldn't do that, man. It's not. There's like leeches and snakes and it's mud water, right? Uh-huh. And uh, apparently Alex is peeping Tom because he's just like staring at her bathing. <laughs> he eventually turns around. He looks kind of sad, like, huh. I wonder if she still thinks I'm hot. <laughs> you know, like, like you realize he's not, he's not going to get with her at this point. Or he looks down he's like, oh man, there's a twig where my junk used to be. <laughs> that is accurate as well. Um, he starts to pout and walk off again, just like he did earlier in the movie. And the goons show up and grab her, right? She cries for Alec to come save her and he comes in and they planned all this. And it's an ambush. Yeah. And they got nets and they throw the nets on them and they like try to hog time with the rope. However, he was strong enough to flip over like a boat earlier, stop a car, rip the top off of a Bronco or whatever the fuck it was. Can he not just stand up with four dudes laying on him with a net and a rope? Well, see, the net's really strong. You know, it's, it's nylon. weighted. Nylon brought to you by DuPont. <laughs> no, I have no idea, man. I totally agree with you. Like he, they've already shown him to be badass enough that this should not have got him. 
I agree they needed to catch him for the movie to progress at this point for the direction Wes wanted to go, but he could have just done it in a way that didn't look so cheesy that he couldn't stand up, man. Weed killer. They should have sprayed him with weed killer. <laughs> Actually, yeah, fucking Roundup. They would have had this. Yeah, Monsanto could have killed Swamp Thing. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh, fuck them, their glyphosate. But we cut back to Castle Arcane, and Arcane's having like this formal dinner, and there's like a shit ton of people there, and even like Cable's dressed up in like a dining, like a evening gown and stuff, yeah. right? And Arcane gives a speech about how they now have the book, thanks to Bruno, and that they've already replicated his formula. Must not have been that hard to make. Yeah, and this is like a really, it's another jarring scene where I get it. It's supposed to be the evil villain in his lair surrounded by his people and shit, but it just feels out of place in the movie to me. He still hadn't got his like editing and like scene pacing down, <laughs> which I don't know how he did for Nightmare on Elm Street. It just worked. Yeah. There are jarring edits where it like randomly jumps to things in Nightmare on Elm Street, but they're always like really scary shit like Tina in the hallway and stuff. Yeah, it doesn't detract. Well, they're just, they're fucking scary. So when they happen, like, to me, like, it kind of masked the uh, randomly jumped because now it basically became a jump scare. Yeah. In a manner of speaking. But Arcane wants everybody to take their drink and toast in Bruno's honor for helping get the book. And we find out that Arcane has slipped the formula into Bruno's drink and he starts to mutate and fall under the table. And then he pops up as this little fucking goblin looking thing. So he actually got... Smaller and uglier. He looks like a reject from the flying monkeys from Wizard of Oz. <laughs> kind of, actually. Every castle has to have a dungeon. <laughs> so Arcane goes down there with Cable. And the, I guess they take Bruno and lock him up at this point. And we see that Swamp Thing is chained up in this dungeon. And Arcane wants to know why the formula didn't work on Bruno. And Swamp Thing basically says that the formula amplifies what's inside of you. And so, like, it made him, like, a, a bigger, better, stronger person, like, help people. Because right? he was a vegetarian. Shit, yeah. <laughs> He's the impossible whopper. Um, <laughs> and that basically, you know, Bruno was a small, ugly person on the inside. And that's yeah. what he turned into. And Arcane takes us as a cue to maybe he should try the formula on himself. Since he's such a genius, his mutation should reflect that, right? <laughs> So Arcane goes upstairs, mixes the formula with his drink, steps outside in the sunlight, starts to drink it, and it takes a little while to kick in, but he starts to basically mutate into a giant fucking turd. <laughs> like, he looks like a giant turd. This must be one of the parts where I stepped out for, like, a bathroom break or something, because I don't remember this. Is he, like, a straight-up turd or, like, a pile of shit like Chet in Weird Science? Holy shit, we're talking about Weird Science again. <laughs> I mean, honestly, he looks like a giant, long, brown fucking Mr. Log of a turd. Okay. okay. Um, and it cuts to Alec in the dungeon and there's sunlight coming through the window. And C- I think Cable tells him to reach for it. He reaches for it and he holds the sun and he, he fucking grows a new arm on the other arm that got cut off. Photosynthesis. Right. It's <laughs> a big word for Josh. I'm impressed. <laughs> um, but it's like a little bitty arm and it starts to grow. And it makes me think of Deadpool. Like when he's growing the arm back. Have you seen that? He's like. Oh, it's going to look so big in this hand tonight. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yes. That's the first thing I thought of when I saw the little arm. I got to go back and watch just the, the scene. <laughs> and then it cuts back to fucking Arcane again, and he breaks out of the turd. It was like a cocoon. So it was like a shit cocoon. Chrysalis is what we call that. Okay. Yes, actually. Wow. You've been fucking watching Bill Nye or Mr. Wizard or something? I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> no, man. I just quit smoking weed. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> 
But what could look worse than like fucking mutating into a turd than like a werehog breaking out of a turd? Because <laughs> it's better, right? And I've got to see this. How did you miss all this? I'm, I'm, it did not suck me in. And I seriously, I was distracted. Like, I think I went off and made some food and just let okay. the movie run. Well, the werehog looks terrible. Okay. Right. And it's, I mean, it's that problem you always have with practical effects in a werewolf. But he's basically, he's a big hog is what he looks like. And he's still got some like the turd skin. I don't know. You just have to see it. But he gets angry and he smashes the formula and he's got like a sword hanging on the wall. So he grabs the fucking sword and he runs down to the basement to kill everybody. However, Bruno is being helpful at this point. He just doesn't want to die. Right. <laughs> and he tells everybody that like, oh, we can get out of the prison. This torch here is like a hidden lever in case a guard ever got stuck in here. And they go into like another room and it's got like a pool of water. And he tells them that the water connects to the swamp. So if they can dive in the pool of water and swim, they'll be out of the castle. This place was horribly constructed. I know. And uh, very conveniently constructed. Yeah. So Werehog Arcane comes running in the room with the sword, and Bruno, like, literally starts acting like the Wizard of Oz monkey thing and starts hopping around the room <laughs> to distract them so they can serious? swim away. Dead fucking serious. So Bruno's like a good guy now, I guess. He's pissed that he slipped in that roofie, man. <laughs> but uh, Arcane ends up like, I guess he knew about the pool, and he swims through it, and he comes out on the shore where they've gotten out. And... Don't remember exactly like who he's stabbing for, but he ends up stabbing Alice Cable in the fucking chest with a sword and yes. he gets her in the heart basically. Right. I don't remember if he was going for her or swamp thing when he did it. And, um, this really pisses Alec off as you can imagine. So then he beats the fuck out of arcane and bludgeons him with a goddamn tree limb. Yeah, he does. And then, uh, he goes over and he, he heals cable just like he did Jude earlier. And, the supposedly dead killer gets up for one last scare <laughs> and fucking arcane stands back up with the sword and they go fighting one more time. Um, but this time Alec makes sure he finishes them off and stabs them with his own fucking sword. Right. We yeah. don't see it. It just kind of happens. Yeah. I say finishes them off one last time, but spoilers here. He's the bad guy in the second one. Also, dun, dun, dun. I don't remember how they bring him back to life, but I do remember he's back. But at this point, Alec just leaves cable. He tells her that she's got to go and she's got to tell their story. And Jude randomly pops up. They're reunited. Roll credits. The end. It is a very fucking abrupt ending. Oh, yeah. I can see, like I said, I have fond memories of this movie, but it came out, we were born in 82. So it came out the year we were born. I saw this pretty early on in USA. And like I said, I watched it, Return, the show, the cartoon, all the same time. Had okay. the action figures. So this still holds like a place in my heart. But it does have like those weird early Craven edits and it does have some bad special effects in, in some places, which he cites budget yeah. issues for that. But you could see where he was going with this. Like this could have been like a nice monster crossover superhero movie, yeah. I think, if maybe he was given more money. This is kind of like what I was saying earlier. This is one that if you took somebody that knew nothing about the movie and nothing about Wes Craven and just made him watch it and didn't let him see the credits say now who directed that be like somebody in the late seventies or early eighties, you know, it really, and I'm saying that as a compliment, it didn't feel like it was stuck somewhere. It actually felt like, unfortunately at the same time, a dime a dozen lighthearted action flicks. Right. And era. he was, I mean, it, it just sucks because he was really wanting to break out of being the horror guy. And he thought like, this is Warner brothers. This is DC comics. The Superman movies are doing so well. And if you think about, remember when he said that, 
he wanted to direct Superman four. Yeah. And Christopher Reeves like, fuck you, you're not directing a movie. <laughs> it's probably because of this. Cause this would have been after Superman one and two, I think either that or he saw last house and he was like, well, you want that guy working with me? No, fuck <laughs> that. <laughs> James Wan had much better luck going from horror movies to DC movies. Yeah. It, it's not like James Wan got to work with like a big favorite superhero either. I mean, it was fucking <laughs> Aquaman that he made it work. Uh, this is true. A couple other tidbits on the movie. Um, there was a reincurring issue. Here's where part of the budget went. Was uh, the swamp water was actually eating the latex suit. Yeah. So they're constantly having to repair it. And uh, there's a funny tidbit in the book where they talk about that. Because um, the movie didn't do good theatrically, but it actually did really good on VHS. And that's when we went into the sequels and the TV shows and stuff. But at one point, you could buy the VHS tape through Avon of <laughs> really? all fucking places. <laughs> we own this shit on fucking VHS. It could have came from Avon. I don't know. <laughs> My mom definitely bought shit off of Avon back in the day. Oh, Lord. And I don't know. This was merely just like a stepping stone, really, in his career. Like, it was. there's not a whole lot of in-depth interviews with him or anything that I could find. Granted, if I had the Shout Factory Blu-ray, I'm sure there's all sorts of fucking special features. They don't make a movie without... Yeah, putting special they features put something on there. in there, even if it's just interviews. But after Swamp Thing, Wes went on to make several more films, including Nightmare on Elm Street, before we get to our next movie, The Serpent and the Rainbow, in 1988. Yeah, and this one is, uh, it's based off of a book of the same name, but the full name is The Serpent and the Rainbow, A Harvard Scientist's Astonishing Journey into the Secret Societies of Haitian Voodoo, Zombies, and Magic. And I know I like pause in the middle of that. That's a long ass book title right there, but that is the title of the book. I would have needed a breath too. But uh, it was by Wade Davis. He was an anthropologist and a researcher. So he really went, he really did look into this and he puts it all in his book and he really did bring back samples for study and all this jazz. The author actually went to Haiti and yeah. did all this shit? Yeah, that part of it's all true. Oh, I didn't know the book was supposed to partially be based off of true, true events. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All that from that's how I read it, but I didn't research a lot on the book, but, uh, I know the guy actually went, um, because there's this whole thing about that. He got attacked for like, what you said here isn't true. What you said here isn't true. You must've made this up and all that stuff all from Wikipedia. I just quickly read about the book on Wikipedia. So how much of that's true or not? I don't know, but the writers brought the book in or actually this, no, the producers brought the book to Craven and said, take a look at this. We're you know, going to work on a film adaptation, and we're thinking for you to direct. So he got the gig, and then Universal saw Deadly Friend. And then they pulled Craven in for a meeting. And they're like, look, asshole, if you do to our movie what you did to that movie, you're out of here. We're not going to have you direct like that. And then this brings us back to diffusion of purpose. Because everything that went wrong in that movie was from too many people pulling it in too many directions. The same thing happened in this movie. Right. You had a producer wanting a love story. Another producer saying, no, it should be historically accurate. And, you know, no, it should be about religion. No, it should be scary. You know, it was the same kind of shit again. The quote we keep mentioning, diffusion of purpose, came from Wes Craven, and it was about making this film. Yeah. And it sucks because this is one of them. He wanted to go in and he wanted to make a historically accurate movie about voodooism or however you say it, zombies. Things like that. And he wanted it to kind of be like just like a dark drama type thing. And the studio's like, no, you're the fucking horror guy. You're going to make a horror movie out of this. 
it, it's just like Deadly Blessing. Like, it feels like that. It feels like it's this movie with this political unrest and this doctor working for this corporation. Like, you know, just the gist of the story doing his thing and, and trying to, to steal this formula. And then, like, the horror shit just kind of gets shoehorned in there. Yeah. Right? Well, this was another one where they did pickups shooting in L.A. when they were done to add in, presumably, the nightmare se- sequences. Yeah. Um, and any of the animal sequences, right? <laughs> oh, the fucking spirit gods get me every time. I know, right? But at any rate, so in this movie, we've got Bill Pullman. And yes, I'm going to go back to the well with this joke. He's been in some things. Um, he's Dennis, uh, Dr. Dennis Allen. We've got, as a matter of fact, there's a lot of people in the movie, like a lot of the background actors and stuff. The whole cast is huge. I'm going to go through the main cast. And I can actually say everybody in this main cast has done a shit ton of shit. Right. Um, but we've got Kathy Tyson as Marielle Duchamp. I'm not positive on how to pronounce this next name. I don't know if it's Zakes. I don't know if it's Zeke. Um, probably Zeke, if I had to guess. But uh, so we're going to go with Zeke Moke. Mokea. Don't know. Um, Sorry. Well, it gets worse because his character is, I know this is spelt phonetically this would be Dargent and that is not it at all but uh, Petro and that's what he's going to be referred to throughout this review um, <laughs> Josh is going to be butchering some French and Haitian names throughout this film hardcore and it's it's all just happenstance it's not because I got anything against any of these people We've got Paul Winfield who's once again been in a fuck ton of shit as uh, uh, Lucien uh, Celine we've got Brent Jennings as Louis Mozart and Conrad Roberts as Kristoff. And like we talked about earlier, I had never seen this movie. Oh, really? Yeah, not at all. I knew a little bit about it. And this is the one I was really excited to go watch because this was the the turning point of Craven's career. His first real movie, you know, is what some people said, his break into the mainstream. And in some ways it was, and in some ways it wasn't. But Nightmare on Elm Street to me is always going to be his big break into the, the mainstream, right? Yeah. I know the movie's always been fucking wildly popular and played you know big theatrical release played on all the movie channels you know yeah and i've heard so much about people talking about this movie and every time i hear it brought up i'm like why the fuck's everybody talking about this west craven movie the serpent and the rain what is this shit i've never heard of it it must not be a horror movie and that's what i heard from you was like oh it's pretty drama like this is a real interesting movie it got pulled in too many directions but it's still a Interesting movie. This is one of them I've seen several times over the years, and it, it's not necessarily like one of my favorites, but it's one of them that like, oh, it's on. I haven't seen this in a while. Let's watch it. I'm the same way with the core. <laughs> uh, but the movie opens with kind of a prologue, and we get text on the screen that reads, in the legends of voodoo, the serpent is a symbol of earth. The rainbow is the symbol of heaven. Between the two, all creatures must live and die. But because he has a soul, man can be trapped in a terrible place where death is only the beginning. Then we get the following is inspired by a true story. So we see Haiti, 1978. We see some guys making some coffins. One is immediately stolen at gunpoint, all while the Terminator theme plays. Now I make that joke because of Brad Fidel. I think that's how you pronounce his last name, which I think we talked about before because he also did Fright Night and a whole bunch of other stuff. But I'll come back to that at the end of the movie. We see this very trippy funeral procession um, with the burning coffin and it gets laid down out in front of this hospital. So inside the hospital, we see a man being confirmed dead with a needle jammed through his fucking lower eyelid up into his eyeball. And he doesn't move, so they're like, yeah, Haitian coroner says he's gone. Um, Actually, I think it's a doctor, but at any rate. 
So I wonder if they like always do that there. I wonder if it's like an older thing of doing just to be sure, just because of the optic nerves and everything. If anything was going to twitch, it would be the eye. Yeah. But we cut to this man's funeral. And as the coffin's lowered and covered, we can see a tear run out of his eye and down his cheek. So it flashes up on the screen, Amazon Basin, 1985. We're introduced to Dr. Dennis Allen, who I'm probably going to call Allen through most of this, uh, who's retrieving medicine from a shaman for Harvard. And he's told to drink some of it before he goes. And he immediately blacks out. And he wakes up to an attack from his spirit animal. So it's a jaguar. And it pounces on him. But then quickly, they're just rolling around on the jungle floor, having a good time, rubbing on each other and shit. And we see it from the point of view of the shaman. And we see that he's just tripping balls. There's nothing there with him. He's just rolling around like an idiot on ecstasy. The way the shaman looks at him and smiles, though, I... I feel like he knows that he's Oh, he knows exactly what's going on. With his spirit animal, yeah. So then the shaman covers his face, and when revealed, it's changed to the face of a laughing madman with this huge shit-eating grin. Right after that, Dr. Allen gets pulled down into the ground by these hands that burst out, and one of them grabs his junk, like, straight on. I don't know if that that was intended that way, but it's he rolls with it. You don't see him, like, swatting it cut away or anything. And uh, he's being pulled down through this void where there's, like, zombie faces. I'm saying zombie in the Haitian voodoo sense and all these arms grabbing him ends up falling through into this darkness. And then he lands on the jungle floor again. He gets up and he goes running back to the chopper. Uh, But he gets back to the chopper only to find his guide fucking dead. So fucking like worms all over his face and shit. But he ends up following his spirit animal back to the road and apparently finds his way out because we cut to Boston and it's uh, Boston biotech. It's a pharmaceutical company, and they've got a mission for him. And they tell him about zombification and about the guy that we saw buried in, like, this case. And apparently there's some kind of drug that's killing people and bringing them back. And we want you to go find out because we think this could be an awesome anesthetic. I wonder if this part was in the book or if this part was, like, Wes Craven. Like, the pharmaceutical company, all all that. All that part is supposedly from the book. That was the whole reason that this guy went, was to get medicine oh so he was actually sent okay 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 there's narration throughout the fucking movie and probably lifted from the book and kind of like uh interview with a vampire i'm not going to go through all the fucking dialogue of the narration i'll just bring up some key points or else we'll be sitting here for two hours he does comment through narration about this dark presence that he felt in the amazon that has followed him to haiti so he meets uh dr mariel duchamp hey i can say that one right um, they say her name in the movie, so that's cheating. I know, right? And uh, she takes him to meet a zombie, quote unquote zombie, and it's Marguerite. Um, but she can't speak. She's only letting out this crazy cry. And I don't know if she's literally doing that or if we're inside Dr. Allen's head and okay. hearing that. Um, just want to throw that out there. But Duchamp says that Kristoff uh, has memory and he can speak and he even speaks a little English. So he's like, all right, let's go see him. But first, she takes him to see a voodoo priest slash nightclub owner, Lucian. And this is a really cool scene because it's like this party going on outside and it's like candlelit and shit. And we see what I believe to be legit locals doing their shit. Okay. Because we get the coal eater. And I mean, burning coal for anyone who hasn't seen this movie, like chomping that shit up in his mouth. A guy eating a glass 
and a guy getting a needle shoved through his cheek. And that's 100% real. And the girl doing it, she's like the producer's wife or one of the writer's wife, somebody. It's Bill Pullman's wife. It's Bill Pullman's wife. Yeah. I said somebody's wife. <laughs> <laughs> they said she, she was like pushing on it and it wouldn't go through. And they're like, push harder. And she pokes it through. And you can see her face. She's like, oh, God. Yeah. So Lucien tells uh, Marielle that she'll dance tonight. Like, right? And she's like, no, 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 no. And she goes to leave, but somebody grabs her and spits something in her face. Meanwhile, Dr. Allen sees a man sit down and he has a flashback to when he was with the shaman and it's the same fucking face. Right. And as he's looking at him, uh, Lucian notices this and he's like, hey, that's Captain Petro and uh, he's a Bacor, a black magician. And he's more importantly, he's the chief of the secret police. So Mariel comes out and she's doing her possessed dance. And Petro clanks his glass like he would for a toast. And one of the guys dancing responds to this and starts freaking out and attacking people. Um, Lucian comes up and bags him over the head and says something to him. And it's like he casts the spirits out. And while this is going on, uh, Marielle collapses. So the next day, number one, we go into the narration and it states that Marielle has no recollection of what happened the night before. But they end up going all around town and nobody will say anything about Kristoff. So they end up with Kristoff's uh, sister and she says that they can find him in the cemetery. And by the time they get to the third cemetery, because Alan's bitching about, you know, the same thing you told me at the last two cemeteries or something like that. He's, it's setting up that he's already had enough. Um, they encounter some grave robbers. And he's like, this is it. It's all a scam. I've seen your hospital and you've told me you don't have enough medicine. All you have is handcuffs and you just want money. And they turn around and run right into Kristoff. He says he can remember everything, but that the, the Bekor took his soul and sends him into other people's dreams. And he also says that it was a powder. So now we know, okay, apparently this shit's legit and it's a powder. So Dr. Allen goes back to his room at the hotel and it's fucking trashed. And there's like dead animals on the walls and all this. It's got to be blood. It looks way too red. But all this symbology <laughs> on the walls, like somebody was doing some casting the evil white man out type shit and all over his hotel room. Why do they do that? It's too red. So he goes to Lucian, who doesn't want to get involved, but he ends up giving him the name of the powder maker anyways. And this takes us to Louis Mozart. Um, so he says he'll make the powder. But he shows them the jar that they can store the soul in. And it's like, so we're learning more about this. It's like, okay, so the powder does it. They lose the soul and the soul is stored in these vessels. And uh, they negotiate to $500 is the deal for the powder. <laughs> so, of course, we need proof. So they go into the back room with a goat and he pours the powder out in this food or whatever. And uh, the goat's going to go to eat it. But Dr. Allen's smart enough that he gets out his knife and marks the hoof of the goat. So he eats it quote unquote, drops over dead. And he's like, all right, so we got a deal. And he's like, I'll come back tomorrow. I see a living goat. We have a deal. So now that they know that, you know, somebody's after him after what happened at the hotel, Dr. Allen and Marielle need a place to lay low for the night. What they do is they end up blending in with this pilgrimage. And as the group goes to sleep for the night, we see this big ass snake kind of crawl over Marielle and over to Dr. Allen and he wakes up. There's no snake. Off in the distance, he can see Kristoff. And he's got like this weird bride that he's holding next to him with her veil down. And he sends the corpse bride over to him. Yeah, I said it that way on purpose. And uh, when I've actually not never seen the movie. And uh, when the bride gets up to him and it, as it's coming over, it's making the same kind of weird squealy crying things like uh, 
uh, Marguerite back at the hospital. And he lifts the veil and like fucking Indiana Jones style, the snake comes flying out of the mouth. Immediately wakes up. So we're already setting up the nightmare thing, which kind of got shoehorned in here. Later on, it makes more sense, but at any rate. Right. Um, yeah, I remember, I think it was Wes Craven in the interview saying that like Bill Pullman had to work with a jaguar, uh, whatever kind of fucking snake that is. And I think there's a, a tarantula or spider. Or yeah, there's a tarantula later. And uh, like they were all just like completely domesticated, raised animals that knew how to work around humans or whatever. But I was like, fuck that with the snake and the spider. man. Even the jaguar would have been scary because he's fucking rolling around wrestling with it. Yeah, that thing can kill you if it decides to go feral. Bill Pullman doesn't give a shit, man. He did it all. Yeah. I mean, this is the president that saves us from aliens. I know, right? More importantly, he saves us from space balls. Shit. Search for more money. (laughs) That was the sequel. (laughs) So the next day, they continue on with the group, and they end up having a sex scene in a cave because they're like in this spring, and like this is healing water, and they start rubbing on each other, and it's like, oh, oh, we're human. Let's go be primal over there. It's a very awkward sex scene. It is. It really feels forced in there. And yeah. that's one of the things that Craven cited was this producer wanted the love story. This producer wanted that. And you can feel it. Not as bad as some other shit, but. So that evening they return to town and Alan gets captured by the secret police. Petro questions him about Marielle and Kristoff. And he tells him he doesn't want him. He tells him that he doesn't want the U.S. involved and sends him on his way. And he also says during this that, you know. Uh, do you know, do you know what happened to Mariel's father? He went missing, you know, and shit like yeah, that. Yeah. Like, you know, the United States would no, want nothing more than to come down here and get involved. Like evil American. I make people disappear. I don't want none of your shit. I better not see you again. Right. That's the point he's getting across. So the next day they go back to Mo- Mozart to, uh, there's no T in the middle of that. The next day they go back to Mozart to close the deal, but he checks the hoof of the goat and he's fucking pulled a switcheroo on him. And he ends up doing the deal anyways, and then he dumps the powder into a cup of water, and he says, you know what I think of your powder? Or no, everyone's standing there laughing, and he goes, you're an idiot, and gets everybody's attention, pours the powder into a cup, and fucking drinks it. Right. And he, and he says, uh, says, your powder's piss. <laughs> 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 he then goes outside, and he shows Marielle that he had swapped it. And he said he did it to buy him some time. I really don't understand that whole thing but at any rate mozart comes running out to the truck and he's like i can make you the real powder but you have to make it with me yeah i just kind of thought like maybe he knew that he would come out after that little act you know that's like we just gotta wait you know and he and he did like it's like he read him you know so we see that the process starts by robbing a grave and as they dig up this grave it's revealed that it's the bride that he had the fucking dream of the previous night and this is where we get a little bit of weird cutting back and forth. That just seems to happen in Craven movies for some reason. It's not that bad in this one, though. No, it's this is nowhere very, near as jarring in this one. This is a very professionally made movie in this case for this one. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and it, I want to, I'll just say it now. I mean, the movie shot well. It looks good. It's lit good. Actors are good. It's just the story and the where stuff shoehorned in there is the only detracting thing in this. So they go back to the hotel. And Dr. Allen's captured again. <laughs> and uh, Petro has, a, has Allen strapped to this chair and he's naked. And he's like, what do you want? And he's like, I want to hear you scream. And Bill Pullman's like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, oh, fuck, I should have wrote it down. I don't remember what he says. He says. I think he says something like, that's not good enough or something like that. And he takes this 
fucking like nine inch spike. Fucking all we see is it go down towards his crotch and get driven into him. And then he screams for real this time. I screamed watching this scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty rough. So they do release him again. And uh, I think it's narration again that says that uh, Marielle took care of him for three days until he was healed enough to move again. And so once healed, they continue making the poison powder. And there's some more, a lot of narration that goes on over it, like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And the thing is, is the actual toxin that gets mentioned at the end of the movie does come from the pufferfish. And the pufferfish is one of the ingredients. And in the book, it talks about using that and Datura. But one thing during the, the narration, Dr. Allen says Mozart could give a Harvard PhD a run for his money. So he's like letting you know that not this isn't some crazy backwoods stuff. Like this guy actually seems to know what he's doing. So they kind of bond through this montage type of thing. And he ends up telling him the truth about why he wants the powder. And that it's not for an enemy that some doctors think that it could make a, a life-saving medicine. And Mozart says that, uh, oh, that's fine. He, he just has to tell the world his name. Right. <laughs> and a thousand dollars. Yeah. The deal now for helping make the powder is a thousand dollars instead of the 500 they negotiated. So later we see Dr. Allen wake up to the same bride again, calling his name outside the door. The doors and windows all slam shut, and the door of the little hut or house wherever he's staying while they're laying low has this cross cut out in it. You see the light on his forehead. It's going to come up later. Yep. And all of a sudden, he realizes he's shut in a coffin, and it's filling with blood. But then he wakes up. So everything's fine now, except for the secret police busting in. Oh, yeah, and the decapitated woman in bed next to him. Correct. Who is not uh, Mariella. Which later on, what gets said, I think it's supposed to be Marguerite with her head shaved. Oh, okay. Because they say something about him being arrested for uh, killing Kristoff's sister. Gotcha. Just like get rid of all the loose ends at that point. Exactly. I do want to say the coffin scene filling with blood is the creepiest scene of the movie. And it feels very like Nightmare on Elm Street. To me, and it, it's a good scene. It, it powerful. It does feel that way, but not to the extent of being out of place. And Bill Pullman's fucking great, and he's so good in that scene. Like, right, I buy his terror so much, and he's still just screaming and giving it its all, all the way up until it fills up and blood starts to run into his mouth. He no fucks given, just went for it. That always fucking amazes me when I see this scene because you're like waiting on it to go in his mouth and he's not even checking for it. He just keeps fucking going even though he could choke on it. Yep. I would say that scene and then like when he has the cross on his head and stuff later, like those are the two iconic scenes of this movie. Absolutely. So this time the secret police takes both of them and this time instead of just going into where the room where he was tortured earlier, they go through this hallway with all these prisoners reaching out from these cells and down below the area so now we're down in this creepy dungeon place but he shows them the soul jars and he says that they now do his bidding doesn't use that word but basically we're starting to understand you know like what Kristoff was saying and what he's saying you know when this happens you become one of the zombie under control by someone so he tells him if he ever comes back he'll be arrested for the murder of Kristoff's sister and he also tells him that he's been in his dreams and that he can be there every time he closes his eyes so he gets loaded on a plane and all of a sudden, Mozart shows up and sits down next to him. So Mozart says that he still wants his money, and uh, it's $1,000 this time. That's where it is. But Dr. Allen tells him, it's like, dude, they took all my money. Like, I've got nothing. They're just sending me on. <laughs> and Mozart gives him the powder anyways with the agreement that the world will know his name. Because he just wants the fame. He knows my powder works. You know, he says it so right. many times. Like, 
Like they're going to know I'm, I'm the man to see in Haiti. So does he make the powder for the bad guy or does the bad guy have his own powder? I don't know because the bad guy seems to be like higher level up than that. Like maybe actually a shaman. I think he could do it himself. I think he's a big badass in all honesty. Like not just like an evil, not like an evil badass that's a good manager and just has smart people under him that doesn't know how to do shit, but he hires the right people. I think he really is that. Like he's actually a voodoo priest. Exactly. So he makes it back to Boston and the tests reveal that the sample is legit. And they also figure out that anyone that was on it would be totally aware of what was going on for the 12 hours or so that it seems to work. So we have the celebratory dinner scene. We got Dr. Allen and the others discussing their findings while we're cutting back to Petro performing this uh, ceremony back in Haiti. Back at dinner, we see this fucking zombie hand come up out of the soup and go back in, which is starts to feel a little night, nightmarish. But Beetlejuice is what came to mind for me. Really? The, the party scene, like when. Oh, OK. <laughs> and the thing comes. OK. But we've got Mrs. Cassidy who fucking taps her glass and stands up for a toast. And it's reminiscent of when uh, Petro tapped his glass back at the club and dude freaked out. And she fucking goes lunging across the table to stab. I keep wanting to say Bill. (laughs) 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 She uh, lunges across the table. Lone star. (laughs) So she lunges across the table trying to stab him and goes into convulsions. And they think she's having a seizure and like, uh, her husband sticks his wallet in, in her mouth or the other guy, somebody. And I'm saying somebody, they're both actually prominent actors and I didn't <laughs> fucking note them. So I'm sorry. But after seeing this, Dr. Allen now knows that he's fucked anywhere he goes and narration talks about this. So he's like, fuck it. I'm going to go back to Haiti and see if I can put this thing to bed. And upon landing, he's captured by the secret police again. Actually, this time it's Lucian. So he casts a spell on him that he says will give him some protection. Meanwhile, we see Mozart get decapitated and Petro drinks Mozart's blood. At least that's what I think because you never see them in frame together and his blood, his head's over this big crappy bowl. But then we see Petro drink out of a small ornate bowl. But okay. it's the way it all cuts because it's bouncing back and forth. But the way it cuts together, I really think he's drinking his blood and like it's a powerful medicine man's blood. And now he's going to become even super powerful priest. That's all on me. I don't know if it's right or not. But as this is happening, we cut back to Lucian, who coughs up blood and drops dead, and a fucking scorpion crawls out of his mouth. Then a man runs up on Dr. Allen and blows powder in his face. Right. Oh, shit. And honestly, this answers my question from earlier. Obviously, he's a badass voodoo priest because, you know, he just fucking killed Lucian without being there. Yeah. And he controlled somebody overseas and all that shit, right? Yeah. He's, he's into some dark shit. He doesn't just play in dark shit. He is in dark shit. But the first couple of shots of Dr. Alan tripping balls is just like in Uncharted 3 when uh, Nathan Drake gets poisoned. You know what I'm talking about? I've never played the Uncharted games. Oh, they're so good. Um, Especially the first two. But he's in uh, a bazaar with these shops. and But he's over in like Egypt or something in the game. But the way the the shots from his point of view, everything starts to go a little wobbly and like pull around yeah. him and he's stumbling around, knocking people out of his way. And the first couple shots of this, it's boom. I swear somebody pulled what they put in the game from this. Cause it's like Maybe. so good looking. 
but he stumbles off and out and he falls down and he's looking up and these people lean over him. And this is when he's got the, the red cross on his forehead and stuff from when uh, Lucian was doing the spell. As he's laying on the ground, he says, Don't bury me. I'm not dead. Now, what's really cool is when they were doing promotion for the movie, they sent these one foot long black coffins to okay. like newspapers and shit that were going to review the movie. And in red on one side of the black coffin, it had the title of the movie. And on the other side, it said, don't let them bury me. Okay. And then when you opened it, it was a full size, the size of the coffin picture of uh, Bill Pullman in the coffin. And then on that, it said, I'm not dead. Okay. So you had the whole, don't bury me, I'm not dead. And it was, there was a real aggressive marketing campaign. They had the, uh, the author of the book go do uh, like television appearances to promote the movie and all kinds of shit. But they used that line right there. That's why I wanted to bring that up there. So now we see what the others saw as far as other people that have been zombified. We got a doctor over him because we're seeing from his point of view, pronouncing him dead. Then Petro comes in the room. No, 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 no rest. You'll see it all. You'll feel it, the cold in the coffin. It is worse. Much, much worse. So we cut to him actually getting lowered into the ground in the coffin and everything. And before they seal up the coffin, he, uh, Petro throws a fucking tarantula in there and says, that's the, this will keep you company or <laughs> some shit like that. And the coffin has the same cross cut out in it on right at, right in front of his face like the door did in the nightmare. And it's not just uh, a hole. I think it actually has like glass. glass. Or, yeah, yeah. So he can like see the dirt fucking coming in on him. It's fucking terrible. And that's why he wanted to use that coffin, right? Yep. And as the dirt starts hitting the glass, the fucking tarantula crawls right across his eyes. I don't know how the fuck he did that without blinking or anything. Well, if you, I went back and watched it twice. If you watch the really tight shot of his eye where you can see his eye twitching and look at the legs, it's I fake think it's looking, fake. Yeah. And then I think the wider shot where you see it crawl all the way across here from over here, I think it's a dummy head. I really do. I could be completely wrong. I was thinking it was a fake leg when I saw the tight shot on his eye, but it, it looked real to me, I thought, when I walked the first time. Because they did say he had to act oh, no, no, with no. a spider. When, it, when it's on him at first, that's totally legit. Oh, okay. But okay. when it shows it, the the profile shot coming across, I don't, I'm not so sure about that. Gotcha. But I could be completely wrong. But luckily, he's in a graveyard. And we found out earlier when they were talking to Kristoff that the graveyard is my only home now. And like a rabid dog, Kristoff digs him out. And for some reason, he's only buried like one foot deep. It's almost like they wanted to make sure he got back up and lived as a zombie as one of his servants, I guess. I think that's like part of the mystique of it and part of the horror is these zombies crawl out of the ground, right? And he wants them to get out. He didn't want them to be stuck. He needed another servant, maybe. Okay. Right? Like, that's kind of what I got out of it. And that's why the doctor checks with a needle in the eye <laughs> because they have so many fucking people come back from the dead, right? And stuff like that, so... <laughs> So Kristoff tells him that uh, Petro now has his soul, and but also now he can see things that the living can't. Meanwhile, the uh, Haitian dictator is fleeing, and the people are uprising, so there's chaos in the streets and shit. So Alan goes to Petro's to save Marielle. I guess he's just, he knows she must be captured if she's still alive at all. Apparently he didn't give a shit about Mozart, but he didn't sleep with Mozart, so yeah. he cares more about her. But as he's trying to go through the building and shit, he's still under the control, or we see that he's under the control of Petro, and he gets chased by the chair, the torture chair <laughs> earlier. This whole next few things feel straight out of Nightmare. They just do. 
I didn't like the chair thing. It felt really out of place to me. Yeah. So the, the chair chases him out of the room and he, he thinks he sees Mariella. Yeah. He goes, has he gone down the hallway yet? He hasn't gone down the hallway yet. He thinks he sees Mariella in one of the cells, the jail cells that we saw earlier. And when he opens the door, it's Lucian and Lucian says some shit to him and then grabs his head and rips his own head off. And he takes off down the hallway, and instead of prisoner arms coming out, they're now these long, lanky zombie arms right. coming out. He gets to the end of the hall, and he opens the door, and he flies out like, I guess it's M.C. Escher and shit, because it's like sideways, <laughs> and he's hanging onto the door frame, and he flies down the stairs. Again, all very Night Run Elm Street feeling. But once he's down there, he gets attacked by Patro, but while they're scuffling and whatever, Marielle frees the soul of Lucian by busting open the jar of his because it's they've we see there's the jar there's a personal item on there because later on we're going to see Mozart's jar and a watch and it's a watch he took from uh Dr. Allen on the plane which kind of left that part out but at any rate but as the soul of Lucian's freed we see this slash go across Petro's face so it's like holy crap they can actually fight back on the spirit plane or something we get this weird shot of Dr. Allen absorbing the power of his spirit animal, which is the Jaguar. And it just, it looks goofy to me. It feels like it's out of a different movie. And uh, with the power of his spirit animal, he throws Petrov through the rack of souls, bunches of them bust open, and he just starts running around, beating the jars, busting them open, freeing souls. So all the souls look like little flames, and they go and they surround Petro. And they slam into him and he bursts into flames. They make their run for it. But on exit, Dr. Allen stops to destroy the torture chair. Like, I don't know. It's like, that chair moved. It scared me. Or like, this <laughs> is where I had a spike go through my nuts. <laughs> I don't know which one it is. <laughs> I'd want to destroy the fucking chair too. Um, but all of a sudden we have a fully burnt the fuck up patrol come in and attack him. And the chair ends up actually helping out this time and captures Petro. The straps go around him and shit. The same spike comes flying across the room all on its own, does this twirly thing over his nuts. And uh, Dr. Allen says the same line back to him. is like, I want to hear you scream. And fucking the, the stake goes into his nuts. The chair flies backwards. The ground opens up, fucking swallows the chair, just like a fucking incubus dragging Martha down. <laughs> And Mariel says the nightmare is over. So we get a closing card up on screen that says that the powder is still being studied and uh, how it works still remains a mystery to this day or something like that or how it works. And cue the Terminator music. Now, and that's the thing. If you take the Terminator theme and add some drums and shit over it, that's what you're hearing in this fucking movie. Because it gets to that part and I even, I looked at the wife and I'm like, why the fuck does this sound like the Terminator theme? And she's like, well, maybe it's the same guy. And like, <laughs> what the fuck ever? And I look it up and it was. Yeah. So that, that blew my mind. Cause I think that's a great theme and he's done music in so many other movies, but this just sounds too much like it. Um, a couple of interesting things about the movie. When they first went, they did start filming originally in Haiti. And of course the first thing that happened when they got down there is the whole fucking crew got sick. That's just how it goes. And during early filming, one of the writers, I forget which one, actually went down there to meet with a fucking voodoo priest and to do some rewrites. And after he met with the voodoo priest, he couldn't write for three days. So he got scared, flew home, 
And then I believe it was said that he got very ill for the next four days. Damn. And that and how unstable things were in general down in Haiti, they moved the production to the Dominican Republic. Okay. Because this was around the time that of the, I forget the dictator's name, but him vamping out and the, the people's resistance coming up. But, you know, one dictator out, another dictator in. Um, I don't even remember how it all went down. Josh is not a historical guy when it comes to stuff like that. But um, once the production moved to the Dominican Republic, one of the local production people that by local, I mean Dominican Republic people, demanded more money. And wasn't given it and sued. And under local law, the entire production was put on impound. So they had no access to their meeting rooms. They had no access to their camera gear, no access to anything. And they eventually paid some people off or whatever and got the movie done. So there were some interesting things with the alleged trip with the writer, seeing a uh, a voodoo priest or whatever, and how that ties into the theme of the movie. I don't know how much of that's true, but that's a good story. Yeah. I believe earlier in the movie you said something about the darkness falling them over and that you would get back to that later. Oh, yeah, yeah, I said it where uh, that uh, once in Haiti, he through narration, he said he felt the same dark presence that he had felt in the Amazon. That's right, that's right, that's right. I was making sure. It's keeping you honest. But we're going to go through, but we're now going to go to, actually, I should give some closing thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked it. You can see that it was getting pulled in different directions. I think the idea of the nightmares and the the evil dude getting inside his head and shit is all totally okay. I don't I think it should have been thought of that first. Right. And done it totally that way instead of going back and doing pickup shots and adding in scenes. I feel like the writing and the directing and everything was fucking fantastic. All the actors were perfectly picked, but I feel like it it should have focused on either being the historically accurate Haitian zombie movie or the horror movie. Yeah. Right? Like, it did both of them well. I just feel like they needed to pick one, which was what Wes was trying to do. He didn't want to do the horror one, right? So, yeah. Well, this was right This was right before he did Shocker, where he finally said, you know, fuck it. If I'm going to be the horror guy, I'm going to be the best horror guy I can be. He didn't for real say fuck it, though, until Scream. Like that, that was like the revival of the fucking, yeah. I'm getting soft. You think I'm getting <laughs> soft? I'm going to do the slasher movie. But years later, we get to the final movie we're going to cover in this episode, and it's going to be the last non-screen movie that uh, Wes Craven directed and the last thing he wrote um, as far as that's come out. Um, I know he worked on some other stuff that came out as far as like the the reboot of the Scream TV series because that got delayed for so effing long he actually had involvement in it but of course I'm talking about 2010's My Soul to Take I was really glad to get to finally see this movie <laughs> I made sure I picked it you know when we were picking our movies for this episode and this is one of them I somehow completely fucking missed when it came out in theaters and I think a lot of people did Uh, yeah like I don't even remember seeing previews for it like it just Came and went, and um, I didn't even know about it until I was doing research for the slasher episodes. Okay. And I almost squeezed it in there, but I saw that it was just like such an insignificant movie, not just monetarily, but as far as like making waves, that I was like, well, this, you know, I wasn't covering every slasher movie ever made when I, because I started writing that before I even had you on the show, right? Yeah. If we were still doing that, this would be slashers episode 24. Right, right. (laughs) So... 
so I didn't put it on there. I was only trying to do like significant milestones in the slasher genre. And I was like, oh, I'll get to it eventually. So I finally got to come and watch it. <laughs> and honestly, I wasn't expecting much. And then I was pleasantly surprised when I, when I watched it. And I, what I got was a good Wes Craven movie, a good horror movie, a pretty good slasher movie too. Yeah. And I just don't know how this movie just kind of got glossed over through time. Well, it was weird. I'd, I didn't see it till I saw it in the wife's uh, DVD collection. I don't remember if we were dating or married, and we watched it, and I was like, oh, okay. Like, I didn't have anything bad. It was a man movie, and going back and rewatching it for this changed my point of view greatly. I always, even before the podcast, it's part of why I got the idea for the podcast. When I watch movies, I always try to think of the director's other work and, and things like that when I see the film. But in this one, because of the podcast and us just covering his backstory, I kind of got like two sides of that coin. Yeah. Because I'll, I'll bring it up as we go through the movie, but this movie really does reflect things from his past and his life, as well as reflect things from other films of his. And I really kind of feel like this movie took everything and just put it all together. Yeah. I mean, I hate saying that like with, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream being in there, which are, they're better movies and they're bigger movies. But I feel like everything from his career got put together in his life into this movie. And I just hope I remember to bring up all these events as they happen, as I roll through it. There's a lot of people in this fucking movie. Yeah, there is. And instead of just like listing them at the beginning, I think I'll just do it as we roll through them. Good luck, sir. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of things that I noticed watching it from other movies. And I just hope I remember to bring them all up as we go. Okay. But the movie opens up with a prayer that my mom used to get me to say every night before I went to bed. Uh, Probably lots of us used to have to say it. Everyone's probably heard it, but it's now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord, my soul to take. And there's our title for the film, right? Yep. And for anyone who didn't grow up hearing that prayer, you probably heard it in a Metallica song. Yeah. Yeah. But we cut to a pregnant woman watching the news about a serial killer named The Ripper. Such a cheesy name, but it works. So original. And the authorities are after him. They have enhanced some video camera footage, like enhanced, right, (laughs) Um, of him abducting a woman. And they weren't able to see his face, but they could see his knife. And it says vengeance on the blade. I know this all sounds really cheesy and terrible opening up. Honestly, though, I think it's because... It's not necessarily another slasher movie, even though it is. I think it was kind of like take it away from that part. Yeah. I, I really feel like it might have been intentional. I'm, I might just be giving Wes the benefit of the doubt here. But but the woman goes downstairs and her husband's down there working on like a toy like rocking horse. Right. But there's other stuff in the room that he's been working on. Yeah. And we find out his name is Abel and she tells him to come to bed because she, the news is scary and she doesn't want to go to bed by herself. <laughs> He goes to shut the light off and he trips and falls and hits his head and he finds the vengeance knife under a table there. While this is happening, though, you can hear the news in the background. I don't remember what evidence they had to support this theory, but they think that the killer might not even be aware of his actions. Yeah. And during all this, I I noticed when I was watching the movie and it really kind of clicked right here. You can hear a woman screaming, help me the whole time he's down there working in the shop. Yeah. You're starting to realize that he's, Got these multiple personalities or multiple memories or whatever, and they're all kind of kicking in. Yeah. But he freaks out naturally and runs to the bathroom with the knife, and he starts to have conversations with himself in the mirror, and they're like multiple personalities. 
and they're going back and forth about what's going on and whether he should call his doctor or not. Call Dr. Blake and I kill your family. His wife brings us the first like cheap jump scare of the movie as she jumps up and gives him a hug, right? Yeah. And then they go to bed and he falls asleep and he's hearing voices, right? Like it's the same voices from earlier. Yeah. And one of them, honestly, it sounds like Jigsaw. <laughs> like the, 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 it's the Ripper voice, right? Like, let's just call it that. Yeah. It's threatening to kill his wife and his kid, right? Because he, but Dr. Blake calls and wakes him up and he tells him what's going on. Dr. Blake tells him he should go talk to his wife and he's letting him know that he never told her about this part of, of his life. She has no clue about it. Yeah. He's not happy about that. The doctor gets pissed though. Cause he was supposed to tell his wife all this clearly. And he tells him he's on his way to the house. Yeah. You are a danger to yourself and others, sir. You should share this information. Like, how long have they been married and shit? Because don't forget about Leia. Oh, yeah? Because they mention in the movie that he has a daughter named Leia. Like, they said something about it earlier. And I don't know if we've seen her yet or not. I don't think so. There's like a dollhouse and stuff that all comes into play. But um, when Abel gets off the phone, he realizes that his wife's dead and that he killed her. Their daughter saw what happened. And we cut to outside and Dr. Blake's there with the cops. And they bust the door down. And it cuts to the bathroom. This part was pretty fucking raw. Him sitting there with the knife and he fucking commits suicide by stabbing himself in the heart. Yeah. I thought it was shot so fucking well. But their daughter sees his body and then goes into the mother's room and finds her. And the father pops up behind him with the knife to stab her and he gets shot to death by Frank motherfucking Grillo, man. They hadn't said his name yet. I had no clues in the movie. But uh, Frank Grillo, I mean, he's in the couple of the Purge movies. He's in like Winter Soldier. He's Crossbones and shit like that. Generally a good actor. I fucking like him and just about everything I've seen him in. But the medics come in and they're like, hey, you need to cover us when they go to check the body. And he says something like, he's dead, fella. And he's like, yeah, Elvis is dead too. Just go ahead and keep an eye on him. <laughs> and um, they, the doctor's like, give him a shot of Epi, right? So they pull out an Epi pin. I guess it's to make sure he's dead, which is kind of like a funny little thing on the supposedly dead killer, right? Like, yeah. And they end up giving him the shot with the Epi pin. And the cop, which was Frank Grillo, starts to leave the room. And he's like, you missed the kid, you fuck. And then he pops back up for one last scare again. <laughs> I'll get them all next time. But, you know, Abel sets up and he, he's got the fucking jigsaw voice again. And then he just kind of like passes back out and falls over, right? <laughs> I think the paramedic yells like, EpiPens are the shit, right? Or something. <laughs> Didn't he say that? Something. But Dr. Blake explains to the cop that he's not a monster. He's just sick. He's still a human being. and. Abel comes back for one last scare <laughs> again. And he starts to, he sets up and he just starts thanking the cop for, for stopping him. And he wants Grillo to take his hand. I don't know if it's like shake his hand or what. So the cop bends down to take his hand and Abel takes his gun and shoots him in the vest. And then he's got the fucking deep voice again. And he says something, some asshole comment to the doctor pops him in the forehead. And then he goes to shoot the coroner, which I don't know if they showed her earlier, but it's, uh, it's Danny Guerrero from uh, Walking Dead. She was Michonne, and she's a Black Panther and shit. It's like there's a lot of people I that were I did work. not catch that that was her. <laughs> yeah. So, like, well, you know, if you only know her from Walking Dead, you've probably only seen her with the with the wig on, right? Yeah. So, and she's got the short hair in this, but that's what she looks like in, in Black Panther as well. But there's a couple of people that are famous now that weren't, you know, when they did this. Actually, how old's Walking Dead? But as he goes to shoot her, the cop fucking pops him and kills him. Hopefully for good this time with uh, like a leg holstered pistol he had, right? Yeah, his backup. We cut to the hospital and we see a nurse pacing around freaking out because there were seven babies that were just born at the stroke of midnight. Out of separate women. 
<laughs> At a separate woman, yes. <laughs> the ambulance radios in and says they're on their way to the hospital with a cop. And we find out his name's Frank Patterson, so I don't have to call him Grillo anymore. <laughs> Probably still will. And the Ripper is still alive, apparently. He's like on the gurney, right? Like in the ambulance. So he's still not fucking dead. <laughs> he's like Jason Voorhees and shit. <laughs> when he says the Ripper's name, the nurse kind of looks up like startled or concerned, like she knew the name. And okay. I caught that like right away when that happened. And it cuts back into the ambulance and the coroner is explaining that she's from Haiti. Hey, it's back. Hey, looky there. And in her country, they don't say people like him have multiple personalities. They have multiple souls. So I'll just go ahead and shoehorn that in there, but it works. It works. <laughs> this motherfucker gets back up again, <laughs> slits her throat, and the ambulance goes and crashes, right? The cops go rushing in. The ripper's gone, and then the fucking ambulance explodes, right? Michael Bay. The end. <laughs> wow, you did a great job of condensing that. <laughs> See you guys on the next episode. No, just kidding. In all seriousness, it pops up and says 16 years later. And we see a bunch of high school kids having like a vigil is what it looked like to me at yeah. the, uh, cause you don't know what's going on yet at the crash site of the ambulance. And they say that it's Ripper day. And this day is special for two reasons. The good reason is it's seven of our birthdays. And at this point, like the, it, it's like a quarterback football player guy, right? He goes down the line and introduces all seven of the kids. Yeah. And some of them I've seen in other shit, others I hadn't, I'm not really going to go into all that, but like he starts <laughs> off with Jerome, who I didn't even realize was blind until way later in the movie. I didn't either. So I don't know if they just didn't like, do a good there's job. A, the scene later on in the movie where he's actually holding his walking stick well, you know up in he, the air. <laughs> you know when he distracts the girls so that they can sneak in the bathroom in the school later? Yeah. When he's like, oh, I'm in the wrong room. He's got the walking stick. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought it was a joke. Holy shit. No, I'm talking about a scene later on when yeah. he's like towards the camera and shaking it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I thought it was like, a, like he was just distracted and being goofy because I didn't catch that he was blind in the, uh, in the woods here. But anyway, so we got Jerome and then it cuts to Alex, Jay, Bug Hellerman, which they make sure they say his last name. Bud. And he's kind of our, <laughs> he's kind of our star of the movie. And his name is Max Thoreau. I hope I'm saying that right. And he, let's see, he's in Bates Hotel. He's yep. on the show Navy Seals now. So he's gone on to do other things as well. Penelope. Penelope. <laughs> Brittany. And Brandon the Douche O'Neill. Did you catch Brittany's last name in the movie? Uh-uh. Cunningham. Oh, okay. I, I mean, like when you say it, I remember hearing it said, but I guess it just didn't jump out at me. But Brandon says he has to bring up the bad part now. The Riverton Seven have to share their birthday with the Ripper who died at midnight when they were all born. Legend has it there are seven mirrors of Abel's personalities that turned him in. And the legend also says the ghost haunts the river and can only come out on this night. And only the Riverton Seven can stop him. It's a pretty cool urban legend, right? Like, good job on that one. It's, on the one hand, it sounds cheesy, but on the other hand, yeah. It, at least it's different. Yeah, yeah. And then they try to summon him. Can you not just wait there, like armed to the teeth? <laughs> right, right. Um, Bugs chosen because only one of them fights him. Yeah. Right? So he gets attacked by a Ripper puppet. And when Brandon was announcing everybody, he thanked Jay for making the awesome new puppet. But you yeah. didn't know what the fuck he was talking about at first, right? Exactly. And it's because they don't actually summon the Ripper. They pull a puppet out and one of them has to smite it. Yeah. It's just their cute little ceremony. Yeah. <laughs> However, Bug is terrified and won't fucking go near it. And then the police roll up and break the party up. Find out there's a curfew in place now and that Ripper Day is canceled. 
and the mayor wants the ambulance removed. And this is by the cop from the beginning, Frank Grillo, but he's now a detective. Yeah. And they're like, why do they want to get rid of the ambulance and this and that? And he goes, because, you know, you don't want people driving over the bridge in a town and seeing the the wreckage from our fucking serial killer, you know? <laughs> so, but Jay has to walk home alone and he's going across the haunted bridge. Like early he said, he does twice a day. And his grandma always told him that if he spit in the river, it would keep the ripper away. Yep. So he stops, spits in the river, hears something behind him, and he sees someone in his ripper puppet suit coming for him who yells, fear you, the ripper. And then he kills Jay and throws him over the edge of the river. At this point, Bug like just kind of randomly wakes up like something happened to him, right? Or he knows something happened. Yeah. This was interesting, though. We cut to Alex's house, and we see him sneaking in his window. And we also find out his stepdad's an asshole. Yeah, he is. To me, immediately when I saw the movie this first time, I thought this was just a red herring to set him up as the killer. It's like, look, he's conveniently coming in late after all this happened, right? Yeah, two on the nose. I was like, we'll just see how this goes. Because this movie does a really good job, like Scream, of making you think almost everybody in the movie is the fucking killer at a different point in time in the movie. You're damn right it does. And I mean, really, I was like trying to figure it out. And I was right during part of the movie, just like I was the first time I saw Scream. I was also wrong several other times (laughs) during the movie. So I'm, I'm glad that he redid that all those years later. But we cut back to Bug, and we see that he's working on this, like, massive arts and craft project for some Condor festival they, like, vaguely mentioned earlier while he's listening to the radio. And he's listening to a radio show, and they're talking about Condors, and apparently they absorb souls or some shit of things when they eat it. (laughs) Random shit thrown in the background there. Well, he's doing research for later on in the movie. But uh, it's like he knew already. But we we then cut to Penelope, and she's praying to keep Bug safe, right? Because this is the next morning. It, yeah. it starts showing where all the kids are. So she's praying to keep Bug safe. It's almost like she knows something's like about to happen. Yep. We see Alex get abused by a stepfather. He just like fucking sucker punched him in the gut and shit. And Brandon is generally being a douche. Yeah, he is. Uh, Brittany calls, and she gives him some assignment with scores for some of the seven, right? I had no fucking clue what's going on. I had to rewind it. I'm like, I thought these were test grades. Why are the names going up? I'm confused. Uh, they're all failing grades. Why? <laughs> Could be golf scores, man. Well, those would be really good golf scores. <laughs> I know. But then we see the kids meeting up at the school and we're introduced to Fang. And uh, Fang is played by Emily Mead. I was really confused as to how she played into the story for the first little bit of this movie. I'm going to be honest. Um, I feel like an idiot. But we find out that Fang actually orchestrated part of Ripper Day. Like she purposely picked for Bug to be the one to go up and this and that. And the scores were for how hard Bug and Alex needed to be hit. I don't know why. I think they refer to them as punitive measures throughout the movie, right? <laughs> but Brandon goes and he ends up slugging Bug first, I think, right? Yeah, he slugs Bug because he's like, this is a three. Yeah. And he turns to Alex and he's like, this is an eight. Yeah. If I remember right. And Alex on the ground, he comes back with some, you know, I banged your mom last night joke. Yeah. And he goes to whoop their ass. And then Penelope comes in and saves them with some creepy ass ominous shit. Like, <laughs> Well, she opens with, uh, you are a stench in the nostrils of an angry God. Yeah, exactly. The line from fucking Deadly Blessing. Oh, I didn't even catch that. Okay, okay. But she says some more shit after that, if I remember right. Yeah. And she's like super duper Bible thumping goody yeah. two shoes she, she really is that kind of character and it just kind of it cuts around to a general school shit and uh we see bug and alex give their presentation on the condor and yeah. like bug 
But before I get into their presentation, I thought it was really neat. Penelope is sitting pretty much in the same spot of the classroom Lori Strode sits in in Halloween. Oh, really? And then she looks out the window and sees the ripper off in the distance in the woods. And Wes Craven didn't make Halloween. I know this, but he fucking loves the movie and thinks goddamn work of art. So I think that was a throwback to Carpenter in there. But after Penelope sees the ripper in the woods, we see Bugs start to get a migraine. And then it's like he harnesses a different personality because he stands up. He's a different voice. He's really bold and loud, and he doesn't appear to be afraid of anything because Bugs really mousy in the movie, right? And he puts the condor suit on fucking Alex, and Alex is running around the room swooping like he's flying, and it covers his whole body. And basically the whole thing is a prank set up so that it can spit slime as Bugs explaining their defense mechanisms all over Brandon. And when he tackles him to whoop his ass, it then shits on him, basically. So they got Brandon with a pretty badass prank. Well, and that's actually what the California Condor does. And who's the kid that played Alex? John Magaro. And I don't necessarily remember him from anything, but he's fucking awesome in this movie. Well, he's in uh, the Umbrella Academy. Okay, which... I haven't finished that. In that. I have so many shows that my wife and I have started, but we can't watch with the five and four year old in the room. Gotcha. And I haven't gotten to finish them yet because there's still not much sleeping with the baby <laughs> and have to run this fucking podcast and have a job. So, but as soon as all this is over, bug starts to feel sick and he needs to get a hall pass. Right. I feel like I've seen this before. Maybe in another Craven movie. Yeah. Screw your pass. He goes to the bathroom and he sees a vision of Jay underwater, like swimming in the mirror, right? And I don't know, this whole bathroom scene thing made me think of Nancy seeing Tina in the hallway and stuff. I'm going to do that a lot in this movie. I feel like it's intentional. Just, you know, we're talking about Wes Craven and in the commentary, if anybody hasn't heard it, when it gets to that shot, he's like, and uh, this scene was very difficult. We built this bathroom set under the river so we could do this shot. Like so dead. It's fucking great. (laughs) We're here to talk about the man, so let's just throw it out there. But uh, Bug leaves the bathroom, and Alex meets him in the hallway, and they figure out that there's a Fang Zone meeting. I guess that's what they call it when the girls meet with Fang. They got a sign and everything. (laughs) And it's in the bathroom, and they figure out a way to spy. Because I guess I didn't say this earlier, but there's lots of jokes throughout the movie about, I'll give you blah, 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 it's your birthday, even though it's all seven of their birthdays. Yeah. But Bug's mom... Gave him like a 1997 flip phone in 2010. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, so bright orange you could see it from space. Apparently it loses shit. I don't know, but like it has like her number and I, I think it literally has 911 written on the back, right? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't it? There is something written on it. But there, there's some fucking phone numbers on the back for emergencies and it's supposed to be his emergency phone. And basically the plan is for Bug to set his phone in there open Call Alex, and then they can spy, right? Snoop onto them while they snoop onto us. What movie's that? Hackers. Yay. But in the bathroom, we see Fang and Brittany meeting, and I think there's some other girls in the room. And Fang tells Brittany more punitive measures for Brandon to administer on the losers, right? Yeah. What the fuck am I even talking about? This is like Mean Girls or something. It totally like, is. I need punitive measures administered. But once the Fang Zone meeting's over, Bug has to go in and get his phone. Graceful, he is not. <laughs> and Alex tries to stop him or something, and they get stuck in this weird mirror thing. Yeah. And it's not like, I don't think it was intentional. It's like every time Alex goes to do something, Bug is perfectly mirroring him. And, and at first I thought it was a game they played until Alex like basically fucking pimp slaps him. Yeah. 
and like knocks him like normal. And Alex gives him this weird look like, man, it's fucking weird when that happens. Uh-huh. Right. So this isn't the first time it happened. But he oddly asks him if he's killed people. Not that I can remember. Bug goes in to get his phone and he's in the stall and you can see where it says Fang Zone on the door. Yeah. And he hears, I think Alex says something like, oh, you can't go in there. You can hear it out in the hallway. And it startles Bug and he slips and hits his head, but he falls on a purse. So he figures out that it's Brittany's. And I think it's, is this where his phone falls into the bag? Yep. Because he's trying to rush everything back into the bag. Yeah. Because he accidentally dumped the purse. So he's trying to get everything in, accidentally drops the photo there. And then she like opens the stall and they just fucking like, Girls scream at each other yes. really loud, and then it just like fades to the next scene. It's fucking fantastic. But what we fade to is the river, and we see Detective Patterson in the same corner at Jay's body. They've now found it at the river, and Detective Patterson says he thinks something bad's coming. He gets mad because he's like, this is the first time we didn't let them kill that goddamn puppet, which he's really superstitious about this, apparently, and I'm assuming yeah. they always kind of monitor him on Ripper Day. We come back to the school, though, and the kids are, and these are much better cutting back and forth than older era. Yeah, this isn't cutting back six times between three different events all in the same two and a half minutes. But the kids are meeting up after school in basically like a courtyard. And Alex goes home and uh, Brandon comes to beat Bug's ass, right? Yep. And Jerome walks up, and this is, I think this is when I figured out he was actually blind. <laughs> and he convinces, actually, I might not have yet even. Like, I just remember somewhere in the movie, I was like, oh, shit, he's fucking blind. I and I felt like an later. idiot. Uh, but Jerome convinces him to leave so that he's not on Fang's bad side. But Brandon reminds them all that many people have seen the Ripper today, and it must be scary to go home all alone without a dad. What a dick. <laughs> he really is. Brandon the douche O'Neill. And uh, at this point, I started wondering. Like, is he able, son? Like, it just kind of, like, clicked right there. Yeah. But Penelope comes walking up to Bug because Jerome and Brandon have split at this point, and they just start having, like, a normal conversation. I remember she says some stuff like, don't forget me. Right? Like, it's really weird. Yeah. Every bit of dialogue they have is kind of strange. But Bug starts to remember everything everyone said that day. And he basically, because she walks off and he starts acting it out like multiple personalities. So you see him saying like Alex's lines and Penelope's lines and Brandon's lines. Like he's talking. Yep. Well, the conversation between the personalities, but he's also saying shit that the Ripper did, like going for Jay, which he shouldn't know about. Right. Yep. Yep. And this movie does a really good job. I feel like of making you go, is it a slasher movie or is it supernatural? Is it both? I don't fucking know. And I think it did a great job of doing that and having the misdirection on who's the killer, like the whole time. Yes. And I feel like that he learned that from doing everything else, you know. But we cut to Penelope and she's praying with the principal's knocked up daughter, Melanie, which we found out earlier from Penelope when she was saving them from getting their ass beat that Brandon knocked up the principal's daughter, right? Yep. Because he's a, you call him the douche O'Neill. He's the uh, crotch dog O'Neill. Yeah, the that's later. I think Brendan keeps calling him crotch dog. Yeah. Uh, but Penelope hears a noise off, you know, because they're in the gym, I think. And she goes to investigate the sound, you know, slasher no, no, number one. Oh, yeah. It's just ghosts and goblins. Yeah. <laughs> she thinks she sees the Ripper and runs up to go check on Melanie, who's gone now. And then the Ripper gets her from behind and uh, slits her throat and then violently stabs the fuck out of her. Yeah, he fucks her up good. That sounded really dark. You can cut that out. I think you enjoyed that too much. No. My favorite kills off camera. <laughs> but we uh, we cut to Bug and his mother, and they're meeting with the principal, probably about the puking and pooping condor. 
And is that more important than being in the girl's bathroom? <laughs> I don't know if you got told on for that. I know. I'm, um, I'm just being a dick. But he starts to pray and talks in like a girl voice like Penelope and says something about the principal's daughter being pregnant, which pisses the principal the fuck off. And this is basically fucking Dream Master at this point, right? From Nightmare on Elm Street, like he's getting the souls of all of his friends as they die. Well, the thing that uh, that was touched on in the, uh, the book he wrote, uh, Fountain Society, which I said it's kind of a sci-fi thriller, that's, but they're taking brains and transplanting them into clone bodies for people okay. to keep living. But in the book, it talks about how they still have the memories and the consciousness of the people's bodies okay. that they're being moved into. And it's like the soul stuck with them. So, so that's an idea that he really liked. Yeah, it really touched on that, too. If you think about it, when Jay died and he set up and he started working on the condor suit. Yeah. Jay made the Ripper puppet. Yep. So it's like he got Jay's power. I don't know what he was harnessing when he started giving the speech in class, that might've just fucking been plain old his dad. I don't know. Cause he, he got real serious and stern. Yeah. And bold. Maybe that was Jay though. I don't know. Like still, cause Jay's the only person dead at this yeah, point. Yeah. And we don't know much about him, but yeah, definitely. It's made very clear. Kinda what's happening. Right. And, and one thing I probably should have said is the, that bugs mom is the nurse from the hospital at the beginning when the ambulance driver calls in. She's like, Oh, we just had seven babies born. Oh yeah. That's important. It's very important. <laughs> Um, I think at this point they send bug home and she's like, you got your phone. Right. And I don't think he realizes he, he lost it. Right. Yeah. And, um, and the principal wants to talk to the mom one-on-one and he's saying, I've only been principal here for six months. And I'll tell you what I noticed is he's never been sick and there's no medical records and blah, blah, blah. And I want his ass fucking check neurologically. <laughs> uh, but we cut to Brandon and he's harassing Brittany for a, a BJ. So once again, we've got man forcing himself on a woman. True. Must Craven. And, uh, she's like, no, no. And he just keeps harassing her. And she's like, okay, we'll do it in the woods. So she goes in the woods and tells him to wait. I don't remember how long. And she makes a run for it. But as she's running away from Brandon, she finds Penelope's corpse at the ambulance site, like leaned up against it. Yeah. Away from the road, the other side towards the river. Right. 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 And, uh, Brandon runs up on her and Brittany takes off. And then he sees the body and he's freaking out and his cell phone rings and he answers it and it's Brittany and she's telling him that she thinks he killed her from, for embarrassing him earlier yep. and letting out his dirty laundry about the pregnancy and stuff. And she tells him that she's already called the cops, which she did all that really fucking fast. Seems quick. And he already did hears you this. really call the cops? <laughs> <laughs> and he, there's so many things like you can do that with in this movie. But he hears the sirens going off in the distance, and he takes off running. So he's basically Rod from Nightmare on Elm Street at this point. <laughs> right? Okay. I mean, seriously. I'll give you that. His phone rings again, and he answers it. But before you hear the other person talking, he just goes on this fucking rant. But surprise, it's not her. It's the Ripper. <laughs> and the Ripper sneaks up behind Brandon and stabs him and asks him if he has anyone he wants to say goodbye to. And he's like, my unborn child. Fuck your fucking unborn child. But we cut to Brittany and we see her running and hiding because she thinks someone's after her and she starts to hear a phone ring and it's bugs. And yep. like, I don't, she's startled that the phone's ringing, which she just had a phone. She called Brandon. So I don't know why she's like so freaked out. I guess just because the ripper is like nearby and there's a sound. It's not so much that, oh my God, where'd this phone come from? It's just, fuck, there's a ring, you know? Yeah. High fucking tension. She grabs the phone to silence it, and she sees a sticker on there that has 911 as the emergency number, <laughs> and she calls it, and it's fucking busy. 
So then she sees where it says like mom or bug's house or something. And she calls that right as the fucking ripper gets her. And I guess the call doesn't go through because it never shows it ringing on the other end. But fuck the CGI blood. Her hanging there and you just see the legs and the feet in the bottom of the frame. I don't care. I think it's a mix of CGI and real. I'm. It has to be. Look at the shoes. I think they use fake blood to like practical effects blood to drop on her shoes and then it's CGI on the ground. Yeah. But it's just so obviously CGI and it's fucking Wes Craven. Why are we using CGI blood? I know, but I still, I love that shot of just the feet and like the blood just keeps coming and keeps oh, yeah. coming and keeps coming. The idea of it and the cinematography of it is awesome. I'm just pissed that Wes Craven used fucking <laughs> CGI blood in a slasher kill. I don't know. That's fucking 2010. Look at fucking, Nicotero being a showrunner on Walking Dead, and they use fucking CGI for almost everything because they have to. It's like, right. you know how long it would take to fucking reset these shots with fucking stage blood? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. We cut to Bug in the woods, and we see him digging a hole with his hands, but then it cuts to Brittany being dragged by someone, and the person dragging her is off camera. Yep. So it's still kind of ominous on who's the fucking killer here. And you're like, it's got to be Bug, but it's too obvious, so it can't be Bug. You know, it's just really well done. I can't stress that enough. Yeah. But Bug goes home, and his mom has a birthday cake for him. And she asks him if he fell because, and she asks him if he fell because the sweater's dirty. And he said he buried a friend. And then you're like, what the fuck? And he goes, my condor. (laughs) (laughs) I like this kid in this movie because he, he, uh, honestly, it's split before split happened. Now, James McAvoy had to go way more out with the personalities and splitting back and forth. Yeah. But this guy goes from like mousy to funny to stern very well. McAvoy still killed it in split though. (laughs) And especially in a glass. Yeah. I hope he gets fucking nominated for that shit. This shit was awesome. Like when they keep flashing the lights and he has to flick. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted more out of that movie. It was still a fun movie though. It was more unbreakable than it was split. Yep. But I was wanting it to be the I, end of the Unbreakable story. Yeah, I wanted more of that story, so I agree. <laughs> Sorry, I, just, I really killed the tension on the scene. But then he <laughs> looks at his mom and says, do you think I killed someone? Right? Like, it's really <laughs> like, what the fuck? Yeah. And um, do you think I did something bad? Let me put the idea in your head just in case you weren't. <laughs> but uh, he tells his mom that he likes Brittany. And then surprise, Fang's his fucking sister and comes walking in the room with some bitchy comments to him. That blew my mind when that happened. I was like, oh shit, Fang's his sister. Yeah. And then that- explains why she hates him and his best friend so much. But not only do we find out Fang is his sister at this point, but his mom calls her Leia, which ding, ding, ding. Like I started to fucking figure everything out right here. Yep. Because we knew Abel's daughter's name was Leia. And Bug wants to know if Fang told the truth about him being institutionalized and killing people. I probably should have said that earlier yeah. when he's spying on the thing zone meeting. They're like, don't be so mean to him. I think it's Brittany. Cause Brittany probably kind of liked a bug too. Yeah. And she says, uh, he's been institutionalized before for killing people, you know? So that, that's why him and Alex had that conversation. And I totally glossed over all that. <laughs> I am sorry, but we cut back to the woods where the coroner and the detective have found the bodies. And Bug's mom starts calling Bug's cell phone. I don't know why she was calling it at that point, though. I don't remember. And they hear the phone ringing, and they find it. We don't really see what happens of it at this point. And then we cut back to the house, and we see, I'm probably going to call her Leia from this point on, uh, come in with a present for Bug. It's like a giant box. 
And I don't remember if Bug or his mom, but one of them's like, that's a first, right? Like, yeah. she's never gotten him a present. And he opens it, and it's the fucking rocking horse that Abel was working on at the beginning of the movie, which he was probably making for his unborn son, right? Yep. The mom comes in, and she's pissed when she sees it. And we find out that the mom and Leia do not get along and that Leia's 19 and still in high school, which that was kind of confusing me. I'm like, how are they in school together? And I guess she's like just held back from being an asshole all the time and, yeah. and things of that nature. I mean, she fucking saw her dad kill himself and then her mom's like dead body on the ground and then most likely watched her brother get cut out of her mom. So she's pretty <laughs> fucked in the head, I'd imagine. She's pretty well adjusted for going through all that. Yeah. I mean, other than she administers punitive measures to fucking minors at this point. Hey, she's an adult. She's just getting prepared for a career in politics. She's got this. Shit. Tell me how you really feel. <laughs> we don't have time. <laughs> but uh, I think this part's really relevant. She starts to make fun of, I keep calling it her mom, but we're going to find out more on that in a minute because obviously yeah. it's not her mom. But she starts making fun of May, that's her name, for hiding behind false prayers and says that she hides behind her and Bug and their mother. And I really feel like the hiding behind false prayers, that goes back to Wes Craven saying his mom did everything through the church and everything, right? Yeah. The fundamentalist church. And I really, I mean, tell us how you really feel, Wes. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Totally agreeing. And uh, we find out at this point that the mom is their aunt. Aunt May, just like Spider-Man. <laughs> but um, And then Uncle Ben comes in. But now we know why she reacted the way she did at the beginning. Like when, when they called in and they said who the Ripper was, it was her brother. Yeah. You know, and, and she's like, what the fuck? At this point, Leia beats Bug's ass and tells him she fucking hates him. And uh, he ruined her life and he's Abel's son. Like if you hadn't figured it all out, bam, we just laid it out for you. Yeah. She goes, West, she goes through the whole big spiel about poor, innocent little bug, blah, 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 yada, yada. You don't know what it's like to grow up in your shadow. I don't think she uses any of those lines, but. She says innocent. I remember it, that word. That gets used again later yeah, in another is, speech. It is a big turning point to launch the third act. And this third act, when it gets going, it's this, it goes. But she goes into her room, and she still has the dollhouse that the dad made that we saw at the beginning, and she hid behind it, you know? And honestly, it reminds me, which Nightmare on Elm Street movie is it? Where it's featured prominently, it's uh, three. Yeah. Okay. It is three. Which Wes Craven wrote, right? Originally. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel like it was done on purpose. Uh, it, it's a bigger, nicer dollhouse than the one that's in there. Well, it's, it's lit up creepily too. Just yeah. Just like the like nightmare version. Yeah. It's the same man, man. Should have brought that it. with me. I have the, the the house that's about this big and it lights up. Oh, that's cool. I've got two of them. But she has flashbacks of the night her dad killed her mom and Bug was born and she starts to smash the fucking dollhouse. Bug comes in kind of crazy looking himself with the rocking horse and he smashes it with her. So it's kind of like it's a bonding moment or like fuck the past, yeah. right? But he tells Aunt May that he knows she's not his mother, but she is his mom, right? So like he loves her like his mom, even though he knows that, but she knows he knows the truth now, right? Yeah. And this, this really is touching on Craven's whole thing about, you know, you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends and they become your de facto family, blah, 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 blah. I mean, there's a lot of his life and his career that seeps in this movie. Yeah. We're about to hit another part that I accidentally glossed over earlier, but... <laughs> Bug has doing a lot of that tonight, sir. I know it's that one scene, the bathroom scene. I just kind of skipped past <laughs> like all the dialogue in there. Damn, that was important dialogue. <laughs> but Bug has the letter from Penelope that Fang had earlier, asking Brittany to open it without 
showing any. She's like, do you know how to open yeah. it without, you know. And she tells her to put it in the freezer. Yeah. Yep. So this is that note. And I, like I said, I left out all the dialogue the girls had in the bathroom for some reason. And I helped not at all. <laughs> I'm fairly certain during the bathroom scene, my five-year-old that was supposed to be asleep, but he stays up as late as his daddy does, came running down the stairs going, daddy. And I had to pause the movie and they go get him uh, back in bed. And then I unpaused it and went back to write my notes and just left out their whole fucking conversation. <laughs> but anyways, he has the note though, and he starts to read it. And while he's reading the note, Fang gets the phone gets a phone call about everyone getting killed and tells May that the Ripper's tearing through the seven and will come for them last. Right. Yep. May wants to go to the church and pray. They'll be protected there. They'll be safe, which <laughs> this has got to be craving, like just harkening back. Daddy will save us. <laughs> Shit. Is the reanimator going to pop up in every episode now? <laughs> I was really reaching on that one. So maybe I'm done. Reanimator's life. Um, <laughs> But when May says she wants to go to the church, Leia says she'll go with her one last time, right? So she does care for him. Leia goes for the car, and May goes to get bugged, but he's gone. If she thinks that fucking the Ripper's out murdering everybody, her dad, some supernatural beast, whatever, is she really going to go wait out in the car by herself? I wouldn't think so, but they've also set her up to be a kind of a badass. Yeah, she's and, scared of shit. And unstable, so maybe she two fucks given. On a lot of cocaine. <laughs> Or that. I don't remember that coming up in the movie. But. Super strong, afraid of nothing. I guess it's PCP. But we see outside that Leia is still waiting by herself, and she definitely looks scared. And then it cuts back to Bug's room, and he was hiding under the bed the whole time. And he crawls out, because May's gone at this point. And as he walks by the window, Alex fucking pops in. Bug says, I, I thought that you'd come, right? Like, I don't know why he, he knew Alex was coming for him. And he tells Alex, you know, that he's the Ripper's son and blah, blah, blah. And Alex lets him know that he already knew all of this. Uh-huh. Bug tells Alex that Penelope's notes that the Ripper would come back one of two ways. Option one, Abel lived and comes back. Option two, his soul is one of the seven. <laughs> That's fucking, those are two far-reaching options there. Yeah, they are. They ask each other if they're the killer, <laughs> right? Like, they're, you the killer? You know, yeah. they go back and forth. They got the knife. There's like a kitchen knife. And they slam it down on the desk. Yeah. And uh, we find out that Alex could not kill his friends. He's like, I could never kill my friends, but I did kill my stepfather tonight. Yeah. And the way it's done is really good because it's like, if you killed anyone, no. And then it goes back to him. It's like, if you killed anyone, yes. And yeah. It's like, oh, shit. And you're like, oh, he shit. is the killer. Oh, and he's like, yeah, my stepfather, I finally stood up to him and he fell down the stairs. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so that's supposed to be why he's there. Like he came to see his best friend because he just accidentally kill his stepdad and he doesn't know what to do right yep and like his acting that kid's acting for alex is just phenomenal throughout this movie you and know, that part was really well written by wes you know a lot of a lot of stuff in the bedroom it may not happen yet it may be when they're back in the bedroom was all shot a year later really they went back and reshot it a year later this movie gets stuck in production hell or something i don't know um i mean it I, had to have right i just know it was well there's also two alternate endings but they Ooh. they don't dig all the way back this far into the movie so i, I didn't read about the alternate endings because you can't find fuck all about this movie so i'm gonna i got them. get you to help me out here <laughs> but yeah a year later because they were talking about how a kid who played bug like actually had was super fucking scrawny when they were filming. And when they came back to do this, he had actually put on a little bit of weight for something else that he was doing. And, uh, and Craven's like, but it's okay. Cause it fits his arc. We've watched him go from scared and innocent to becoming a man. <laughs> <laughs> Did he say it with that goddamn twinkle on his eye and the smile? Yeah, totally. I could hear it. So good. 
fuck you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this wasn't one of the cool commentaries where you see them doing a table read, like set up down in the corner. Actually, I hate it when they do that. I also have a cold and I'm on cold medication. So yeah, yeah. Make fun of me all you want. No, no, no. Jesse's given us to quote, no effects about 60 or so percent. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I was thinking it was at least a 72. Let me get back to this movie now. Bud goes to get some water for Alex, and he sees Penelope's ghost in the bathroom mirror, and she points to the sink. And he looks down and sees the vengeance knife. I got to point out, because the medicine cabinet door is already open, and when she appears in it, and she actually puts her hand up on it, and the door moves a little bit, yeah, does such a good touch. It was really neat. If they're supposed to be like ghost, but it, since it's like a soul in his body and in his head, that kind of, yeah. Well, it's still supernatural. It's in his head though. Anyways, Bug doesn't know how the fucking knife got there. And he picks it up and then he starts like flipping it shut and open. So he's pretty good with the fucking knife apparently. But Bug hears a noise and does the slasher thing. Let's go fucking investigate by ourselves. <laughs> but he's got the knife. He can't find Alex, but he does find Detective Patterson. And oh, his fucking mother's dead on the floor. Yep. In a big bubbly pool of blood. Detective Patterson tells him that he was a miracle and the only bearable thing about that day to even fucking happen. And you get like a flashback of them like delivering them in the fucking crime scene like yeah. right there. And uh, he just wants to know why fucking Bug did it. And Bug says, I didn't. Flat <laughs> out says it. And Bug asks where his sister is. And then the lights go out in the house, right? And the fucking Ripper attacks Patterson from behind. But Bug and the Ripper play a game of cat and mouse as they run through the house. And uh, Leia saves Bug by yanking him into the closet, which is kind of like a little jump scare that she pops out and gets him, right? Yeah. So we know she's not the killer at this point. Um, She says that she knew that fucker was going to come for him, right? But jump scare time again. Fang gets knocked the fuck out as the Ripper bursts through the closet, Mikey style, and beats the shit out of Bug. He says that he saved him for last, and then he hears something upstairs. The Ripper does, and he takes off running, right? Because he's got the fucking jigsaw voice when he yeah. talks. Yeah. Bug helps Leia up and tells her to get out and go get the lights on and go to the neighbors and call the cops. I wonder if it's the McKenzie's. I was, right? was fixing to say, we could have got a neighbor's name. That would have been great. Uh, Bug goes upstairs and the lights turn on from, I guess, Leia hitting the breaker or whatever. And he grabs the knife that him and Alex had earlier and like stabbed in the desk. Yep. But he can't find the ripper. But he does find blood on the window and then like a trail to the like the closet door and a handprint on it. And he opens the door, and we find Jerome bleeding and swatting for him. This could have even been when I figured out he's fucking blind. I don't know. Like, Eureka! Uh, but he says that Alex called him and said the three of us need to get together. Yep. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, Bug tells him that he saved his life by distracting the killer, and then Jerome unfortunately passed away. But Alex climbs in the window once again, and Bug starts to accuse him of being the killer. But Alec turns it on Bug at this point and convincing him that maybe he's fucking crazy and he did all of it. He tell, lets him know that his dad was uh, 16 when he got diagnosed with schizophrenia, yep. which they all turned 16 this week, right? Yep. Yep. Bug tells Alex that he's stronger now with the souls of the rest of the seven. It really comes out of fucking nowhere just like that. <laughs> he then does some Sherlock Holmes shit and runs through everything and points out the clues. Like this is this and this calls this. There's blood on your ear, right? Yeah. And we find out that Alex has the bad soul and set Bug up the whole time. But he offers Bug the same deal he offered Abel at the beginning. If you keep your fucking mouth shut, I have a plan. We're the only two survivors and we'll be the heroes and blah, blah, blah. Kind of like Billy and Stu. 
Kind of. Yeah. And uh, Bug tricks Alex and then fucking stabs him, like freeing him of the soul. Right. Yeah. And it's really like just a jarring ending because he walks outside and like the police there. And I was actually waiting on them to arrest him or open fire on him or something. Yeah. But Leia told everyone the story and that Bug's now like the town hero. He fucking stopped the murders of Alex. Right. Yeah. And we're getting that through narration from Bug. Yeah. As we're seeing him walk out. And he says he's going to have to fake it for the others. And he says he's the condor carrying the absorbed souls. So the fucking bird reference made it back. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I really like the movie and I really feel like it had a lot of Wes's career and his personal life put into the movie and a lot of heart and soul. Yeah. It, not trying to be punny. It felt totally different because this is my second watch for it or my, my, my second watch of it for this episode and coming on the heels of all the research, it felt Totally different because I, I knew those things now and they're fresh in my mind. Like it made you appreciate it more? Hell yeah. Because I mean, there are definitely throwbacks to his other films in the movie and it definitely had his style, but you also like had uses of literature and metaphors and prayer and like reoccurring themes. Like it all, yep. everything was back for this movie. I, I don't know. Like it was, like I said, he, some of the throwbacks to like Scream or a nightmare movie and things like that would make you like, oh, this is a reference to that, which would make you think you knew what the plot was going to do. And that in itself was a red herring. Yeah. And I really thought it was fucking genius. And I, I think I said this earlier, like it did a great job, like scream of fucking this person's the killer. I know it is. Oh, no, no, no. It's this one. It's definitely this one. I got to be right this time on this one, you know, and, and it did a good job of doing that. Yeah. But and, no, it's a fucking evil soul jumping from body to body. And that was going to be my last point. It's a slasher movie and a supernatural movie. And I was trying to figure out which one it was. And really, they were blended well. That can be a fucking nightmare. Like, they can just turn it like shit in so many movies when they try it. And it worked in this one. And it's because we had the fucking master of horror doing it. I'm glad that, like, I have a new slasher movie that I like on the list. I'm glad that I got to see. I, I like to call it his last movie because Scream 4, I mean, that was, he didn't write it. He just directed it. Yeah. And it was just another Scream movie, right? I, I say that I love Scream, but, like, and honestly, I was surprised when we did the Scream episode, I actually liked four better than the other two sequels, but it was still a sequel. This, yeah, it was still a sequel. This was his last original work. I'm glad he also wrote it. Yeah. And I don't know. I just like, it had everything in it and I'm, I'm, I'm just wished it would have done better and was a more known movie when I was peeking around on the internet and I saw a couple of YouTube videos after and some dreaded posts and stuff like that. It seems like everybody who's seen the fucking movie liked it. It's just nobody saw it. Yeah. And I think, I think part of the problem though was taking me, for example, you know, when I first saw this movie, you know, my joke was, oh, this is what happens when Wes Craven tries to do Scream without Kevin Williamson. Like it was a repackaging of a lot of those ideas. But then watching it for this with all this stuff fresh on my mind is like, no, this is I'm giving the, not giving this man enough credit because there's a lot of smart stuff in here, especially like what you said with throwbacks and callbacks that are red herrings in and of themselves because right. I knew people were going to think that those were the, the buttons being pushed. There's a few more things that I gleaned from uh, the commentary. That's fine. Um, I also want to hear about these alternate endings. So, yeah, I've got those on here and they're they're from the Blu-ray. But uh, the movie was originally called Bug. And they ended up not being able to use that because there was another movie called Bug Fixing to come out. So during production, the movie was 25-8. I heard the 25-8. I didn't hear the bug one, but I didn't get the name 25-8. You'll find out in the uh, alternate endings. Oh, uh, okay, okay. 
Craven was a hardcore bird watcher. In 2010, the same year that the movie's released, he joined the Audubon, California's board of directors. He okay. was that much into it. So okay. the whole thing with the condor and plus the condor as it eats, it's absorbing the souls, all fits in with Craven. Um, the voice. Okay. Uncredited fucking Roger Jackson is part Ooh. of the voice. So when it's Jigsaw-ish, it's because it's mixed with two other voices and one of them modulated. They use different voices at different parts of the movie. The idea was, depending on who it was at the time, they wanted to mix in that voice, but they ended up doing most of it with just one actor. But they did bring Roger Jackson back. That's pretty neat. Just to have the creepy phone voice. So there's two alternate endings on the Blu-ray. And uh, after Bug kills Alex, he says a monologue, but this time he's standing in the bedroom and he talks about fighting evil. You have to do it 25-8. You can't just do it 24-7. And that was the the title of the movie through production. That's pretty fucking badass. Yeah. There's also, it with it closing on him walking down the street, talking to Alex and one of the other kids. And there, I think it's Alex says something about how they have to watch each other's back, like friends do. Right, Bug? Um, something like that. And Bug steps across the double yellow line as a truck approaches from behind and drives right into him. But they just disappear. Well, they're the spirits. The okay. shot turns around and you see the other kids are walking in front of them. And they start disappearing one by one. And in one of them, Fang actually comes into the room. And I think she asks if he's the killer. And he says, you tell me. Don't don't hold me to this. But the important thing is, is she puts a gun to his fucking forehead. It goes black and we hear a gunshot. So. So she killed him? I don't know. It goes black. I don't know if she killed him or he killed her. So I don't know. I'm fine with the original ending. It's one of those. That's what I saw first. So. But there's a couple of movies we've talked about in the past where the alternate ending, fucking The Descent. Right. That one I'm always going to come back to like, God damn, that's that's the right ending. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, not so much on this one. Yeah, I mean, I don't always like the happy ending, but it worked for this movie. But even the him walking with the ghost wouldn't have been an unhappy ending if everything else happened up to that point. No. But, well, I mean, we still have, he's a fucking lunatic and he's still on the loose. What do you mean? Do you not think that there could still be a fucking bad soul? Uh, I mean, where would it have jumped to? Why is it not? Not in Bug? Yeah. Yes, uh, you're right. <laughs> I, know, I was just kind of thinking maybe like when he killed the body that had the bad soul that was gone like a soul normally would be. It's just there happened to be the seven kids born at the same time he died the last time. Like I was thinking it was like just like the ultimate chain of supernatural events happened the first time and he killed it this time. Well, no, I I, I really think like the whole working, the what was going to be the title, 25-8, was that's what Bug was gonna, now going to have to live with. And he was going to have to fight this off 25-8, 24-7 wasn't going to be good enough. Uh, you saying that makes me think you're right. Plot wise and like thinking about the coolness and getting all into it. I like the name 25-8 better. Yeah. But my soul to take was a better like normal theatrical <laughs> Yeah, name I, I think, and I don't remember if this is one of those where they tested it under twenty five eight and didn't get a good response or what. But regardless, I think if Scream had never happened and this movie happened, it would have been respected a lot more and probably done better. I wonder if it did get stuck in production hell. I mean, when you when you say reshoots were a year after the rest of the scenes, that makes me think production hell. And usually, the big movie studios when they've put all this money into making the movie. And they do the test audiences and they have to go back and do a bunch of reshoots and spend money. They don't like to spend money on fucking advertising for some reason. Yeah. And it tanks their movies. 
doesn't always tank them, but it, it doesn't help them. I mean, fucking Disney's guilty of this with the solo movie. Well, look at uh, look at Cursed. Ooh, do I have to? I think it was uh, Christina Ricci that was quoted as saying, you know, the version that was released was the fourth version of the movie that was shot. Right. Like, I don't know how true that is. I heard that there was definitely the movie was at least shot twice, basically. Right. Um, going back to the original stuff. But shit happens. Like you said, I think it's a great thing to close on with it being the last thing outside of Scream that he did. And he wrote it. And there's so much of him. It just, it oozes Wes Craven. And I don't, I don't think, I know for a fact I didn't see it that way the first time. But after going through all this, I see it completely differently. I love the amount of movies that you didn't like that we cover on this podcast. And you're like, I see it in a different light now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Josh, we finally got to cover your favorite horror director how do you feel um tired (laughs) i know there's a lot of work in these couple episodes the episode you guys got last week that was like an hour and 40 minutes cut out of it to get down (laughs) to that almost three hours and uh this one is worse so yeah i'm glad to finally have done this like the directors we've done previously had smaller bodies of work like peter jackson had only done a few horror movies right so that was easy yeah Eli Roth, we purposely picked because neither one of us were close to it. Yeah. And that is our most downloaded episode by a metric shit ton. Which is so odd. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so uh, we did something right picking that one. And and it was really daunting. We we're kind of scared to do Wes Craven or John Carpenter. I mean, yeah. and with, with the baby coming and Josh having time to read a book for it. And I don't know, it just kind of all worked out. It did. It really helped that we had already done the Scream franchise. Yes. And we're planning on doing Nightmare on Elm Street. So cutting those out, it, it really let us get to the meat of it. We got to do his first, and I don't even think it's questionable, most fucked up film he ever made. Yeah. And then we got to see like his, I need to make money, cheap sequel, I feel like, right? <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a sequel, but it, it could have been. And then we, I mean, we just got to see different stages of his life all the way up to his last non-Scream movie. So technically we've covered his last two movies because we did Scream yep. 4 before. We weren't doing it from quite the same angle as the director, but I'm I'm glad we've finally done a master of horror on this fucking show. And there's not really, unfortunately, there's not many movies left in there I'd even want to cover or could fit anywhere. No, really. well, I think we could. I mean, we, we've got People Under the Stairs, Vampire in Brooklyn, and deadly friend so cursed has to be covered but it has to be oh, yeah, some yeah. sort of parody episode or something yeah, I i'm don't not know. including that in the list because that for sure we have to talk about scream with werewolves <laughs> when you see the behind the scenes of that film because we almost covered it yeah in the werewolf episode but i didn't want to shit on a movie that bad <laughs> but when you hear what it could have been they could have possibly been like the best fucking werewolf movie ever made if all the stories are true or it could have just not worked and been even worse. I know that doesn't sound possible, but you never know. Um, I do want to say kind of in closing on this was uh, what's used for closing in the book, which is a total ripoff. And, you know, if someone else said it better, you know, don't try to say it better than them. Just say what they said. And uh, Craven used the, the phrase kick against the prick in reference to animals kicking against um, the prick. And it digging into them worse, which just causes them to work harder. Talking about like field animals. And uh, that is an example of him getting stuck in horror. And, you know, he spent 
a lot of time in stuff that didn't work where he kept trying to get away from it. It wasn't what he wanted to do. And eventually reaching the point where he said, some people try to make movies their whole lives and never get to make anything. I get to make movies. People come to me and say, make my movie. Right. So I need to just embrace this for the fans of it. And that's what he eventually did. And I think we got some some of his best work then, but I think we got some of his best work before then too in certain light or at from certain angles. I don't know. He was just a, a creative man. He seemed like a good guy. If you've never seen an interview with them, you just like some of those movies, definitely go to YouTube and see an interview and you see a guy that loved his craft and, and loved what he was doing. Yeah. He wanted to get out of horror at certain parts in his career, but at some point he just said, fuck it. And he embraced it. Yep. And um, I think it was the best for all of us. But it is going to be nice to take a break from this this big of a project on this episode. And this serious of a project. As we go into the next episode, where Josh and I decide to cover horror comedy films. Tequila is my lady! We've been talking about doing this forever. Yeah, fucking finally. I'm very excited. I love horror comedy. We've done a good job of staying away from it for the most part. And I may be just as psyched for this as I was for Wes Craven. No, no, more psyched for this than Wes Craven because Wes Craven, I knew I had to work. Right. (laughs) These movies that we've picked are going to be a blast to cover. And honestly, we can't get the list down small enough. So it's probably going to be two episodes of comedy horror movies. And we can still do a third one down the road. (laughs) But I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So make sure you check that one out. But you guys just keep spreading the word and keep coming back. We see those downloads climbing. In just a couple of episodes, we've gone from 1,000 downloads to 2,100. So obviously, you guys are doing a good job of that. Yep, yep. Please send us any comments or questions that you have to sbyspodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at sbyspodcast. See you guys in the next one. Thanks for listening. Somebody once, when I was first starting in films in New York, says, if you want something on your gravestone in in the film business, I think the best thing is filmmaker. If you can honestly say that, that's all you need to say. And uh, that I think I would like that on my gravestone, along with whatever you do, don't fall asleep.